Tina Rasmussen learned to meditate at the age of 13, has been meditating for over 30 years. And Stephen Snyder began practicing Buddhist meditation in 1976. We're very pleased to have them here with us today. Welcome, Tina and Stephen. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to sh- start with a short sitting. And we'll just give you the basic meditation instructions right now, and then later we'll elaborate more and more on these. Uh, So we'll sit for about 25 minutes, something like that. And really all we're doing with this practice, which is Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. And in this practice, we notice the breath as it comes in and out, and in a particular area right between the upper lip and the nostrils. So um, we invite you today, if you haven't practiced with this location of the breath, to consider trying it. If you don't want to, that's your choice. But really all we're doing is um, breathing, which you're already doing, and we're noticing that we're breathing. So in all of its simplicity, that's really the practice itself, is to just relax, let the breath be natural, Breathe as you would normally, and to just notice that in this area. So we'll go ahead and do a a 25-minute sitting and let people get settled. The room is so still and silent already. That was lovely. So, welcome. Welcome. Am I on? Oh. Welcome. Welcome to those of you who have sat with us before, and special welcome to anyone who's new with us. So for those of you who are new, we thought we might just say a little bit about ourselves uh, and our, our practice so you have some sense of that. We actually, after we met, we found out we both started meditating the same year, even though we didn't know each other then. I, um, I started meditating at the age of 13, 
and um, and just had the good fortune to uh, at the Methodist church that my family went to outside of Chicago learn meditation from somebody who was giving a you know a presentation at a family day and um, in my 20s, got a lot more interested in the practice, started doing Buddhist retreats here and elsewhere, and uh, really started practicing a lot more deeply, and started with short retreats, went to 10 days, and pretty soon was going up to month-longs, which I then started doing every year. And, um, and Steve and I both pr- do many different... Our first time with the ear mic... Um, uh, do many different practices. So at that, that time I was mainly doing Vipassana, but also was involved with yoga, Qigong, and some with Tibetan Buddhism as well. And, um, and in my 30s decided to really go deep, and I did a year-long solo retreat. And it was a very profound experience. Um, I did not go, I, I did the a month long here in the three month retreat at IMS at the end of the year but in between I was basically practicing doing solo practice um, 10 to 12 hours a day in silence for the whole year and um, after that one of my teachers suggested that as part of what I had developed during that time there were many other things but suggested that I try and do a retreat or, or be in contact with Venerable Pawak Sayadaw who is even today considered to be the most um, a very advanced meditator and the most knowledgeable about the jhanas. And so a year or two later, I did that, and Steve and I actually met as a result of attending that retreat, the Saida's first retreat in the U.S., which was held in California, and um, completed the entire Samatha path during that two-month retreat. And then we ended up writing our book at the request of... Um, some other students of his, and that ended up being published by, by Shambhala. This is the book. And uh, he authorized us to teach the year after that. And I should also say that during that two-month retreat, I ordained as a Buddhist nun. So um, the, the, the Saidao ordained me for that time. And um, yeah, so we've been teaching for about 10 years now, here and internationally as well. And as Tina mentioned, we both started meditating in 1976. <clears throat> I, I was a little older than 13 at the time. <laughs> but um, I gravitated in, into the Zen tradition and was there for about 20 years doing retreats and being pretty active. And uh, interestingly, at least to me, at some point I became really curious about what the Buddha actually practiced. I heard a lot about what the Buddha said and what the Buddha did, but I wanted to know well, what did he actually do? And that's where I began reading suttas and, of course, saw the references to jhana. And in those days, there was maybe one book or perhaps two on, on jhana in English. And, but I'd, I'd heard of people coming from the Spirit Rock community to Burma to study with Paul Xido. And I had the interesting uh, experience when the retreat happened. I got an invitation. I knew the organizers, as Tina did, 
And I had planned not to go. I was to start a new job and I had all these things happening. And I literally watched myself on the computer say, yes, I'm going for two months and hit, <laughs> hit enter. And I had that experience of like, who did that? And, but by the time the treat came around, which was about eight months later, my circumstance had changed dramatically. Not only had we, we yeah. gotten married, we had met before the retreat and gotten married, but just my job situation changed and whatnot. So it worked out to go, which was a great experience. Uh, and like Tina, I've practiced also in Tibetan Buddhist tradition and with some of the Western non-dual teachers and Diamond Heart and other things like most people these days in the West, a very ecumenical practice. But this one for us is very foundational. This is a really mm-hmm. core practice and one that we find gives us the ability to build on and apply as we practice other practices. So for today, we're going to have teaching and then periods of sitting and teaching and sitting. Um, We'll have lunch around, let's see, around noon, 12.15, something like that. And we'll have an hour for lunch, so if you haven't brought lunch, you'll have time to go get something. We will be in silence today, so if you've come with somebody and you want to talk, that's fine. Just please go somewhere so that others who really want to use this as a a day of silent practice can have that that space. And um, we'll really share with you, uh, we are teaching, we should say, that we teach from the perspective and in the lineage of Venerable Pauk Sayadaw, who is, you know, by many considered to be one of the um, most um, advanced meditators in Theravadan Buddhism that's alive today. Uh, we teach from the perspective of that lineage. So within the Samatha concentration um, practice, there are many different lineages, and each one has its own take on how the practice should be done. So we don't really, you know, comment so much on the other styles of the practice. We we teach what we learned and what we know. And so that's good just for you to know that. And, and also what Tina's implying is that's not a judgment on our part to say that ours is better. It's just this is, this is, this is what we know, what we experience. So right. that's what we teach. So just logistically make sure your cell phones are off and... Um, we do have a table with flyers, a few flyers that has our schedule. We'll go through that at the end. And also um, Spirit Rock has some of our books for sale, as well as uh, Richard Shankman's book. We're teaching a retreat with him next weekend. His book is kind of a survey course of different the different lineages, um, but those are both for sale. And if you want to be on our email list, you can sign up for that. Um, we only send out emails about six times a year, so you don't get bombarded. Okay, so um, we'd like to we like to kind of know who's in the room and a little bit about sort of where your practice is. So we'll just do shows of hands. How many of you have done concentration meditation practice before? Okay, and how many have you done it? in this this tradition of Pawak Sayadaw. Okay. Uh, Vipassana. 
lot of people. That's what we usually have the most of. How about Tibetan Buddhism? Okay, Zen. Okay, a yogic tradition. Christian mysticism. TM. Uh, Goenka, even though that's still Vipassana, it's a little different. Okay, other. I always wonder what that is. <laughs> we have someone who practices, has been practicing with us for years whose main um, lineage is Wicca, so we always like to include other. Okay, great. Well, you're all welcome, and today is really for wherever you are. Yeah, maybe we'll ask how many of you are, are new to meditation? Okay, um, intermediate and experienced, and it's not it's not egotistical if you raise your hand, just to the truth. Okay, great. Well, today is appropriate for wherever you are. Nothing that we're doing is, um, uh, you know, beyond a new meditator. And if you are intermediate or advanced, this practice and the the capacity for concentration really is useful, no matter what your primary practice is. So we hope to shed some light on how, um, how this might be part of your ongoing uh, repertoire of practices. So um, since we will be in silence for the day, we, we like to just have you, we really, Sangha is very important to us, especially on retreats, but even in a day long like this. So just take a minute and say hello to the people around you, maybe say your name and um, where, where you're from, and uh, you know, just make a little contact and say hello before we start the silent part. (laughs) Over the years, not good with a lot of hair. Now I get why Sandra always has so many problems. You can always pick those up at the end, end of the day, those conversations. So what's compelling about this practice? Why do it? Why come here and spend a day or you know, spend more than a day if you're on a concentration retreat? And as we've said, we've both practiced many other kinds of meditation before and see that there's value in all of these different kinds of meditation have have their own thing that they're doing and have value. Um, and so what's, what's the value of this practice in particular? And um, as we, you know, we did this retreat with Pak Sayadaw, which is very profound. We were both impacted very deeply by it. 
and um, as we try started integrating that experience and figuring out what does this mean for our ongoing practice and for the rest of our lives, uh, we did a lot more research into the practice, a lot more reading and understanding how this was for the Buddha, what role it played for him. And the more we learned, the more compelling the practice became. And um, in part because of the Buddha himself. I remember I was at a retreat, probably one of my first month-longs here at Spirit Rock in the Upper Hall, and I didn't even know about jhanas back then. And somebody in the audience asked the teachers, you know, should we be doing the the practice the Buddha did before we do Vipassana? And I thought, what are they talking about? I didn't actually know there was anything other than what we were practicing. And so if you really look at what the Buddha himself did, he was born as a prince, lived in a palace, had a very luxurious life. His father tried to shield him from the outside world so that he would continue on and become a king. And he eventually left the palace and went out and um, in his own search and saw things that really made him want to understand suffering and what the human experience was all about. And he looked for the teachers of his day that were the most experienced and the most well-respected and advanced. And so he went to those teachers, and one of those teachers taught him the first through seventh jhana, and the other teacher taught him the eighth jhana. And at that point, according to the tradition of the day, that was it. That was the end of the path. And, um, and the Buddha was authorized to go out and start teaching people himself. And, he, you know, he obviously was, had, had many, many lifetimes to cultivate a practice where he could do that with a relative, you know, amount of ease, although he did have to put some energy into doing that. And then he realized that there was more beyond that, and that's really where he created the Vipassana practice of really not needing the concentration and uprooting um, our mistaken beliefs about what we are so that it might be permanent. Um, But this was a big part of his life, and even if you read the suttas, if you read all the suttas, not just sort of picking certain suttas, he over and over and over and over and over, when people ask him how to practice, he talks about doing concentration practice to to start, and he himself... He didn't just stop doing this after he was fully enlightened. Throughout his whole life, he continued to practice concentration and and experience the jhanas. And at the moment of his death, and he knew he was going to die, he had this capacity, so he knew that he was going to die that day. The last act that he did before he died was to go into the jhanas. And then he died after going, you know, up through the jhanas and coming back down. So... You know, we don't know, we can't really know, we can't ask him why he did that, but clearly this was really important to him. And he didn't just stop doing it, it wasn't just some throwaway thing, it was important to him in his own um, unfoldment towards full enlightenment, and it was still important to him to continue practicing after enlightenment. So for us, um, it really is compelling to us that this was a major cornerstone for him. And um, and if we think back, and he he was given these practices by others. Now he may have made it into a certain format that was part of became part of Buddhism. So we don't know that it was exactly the same. But if you look at the yogic texts, 
you can see this practice reflected even back to up to orally maybe 5,000 years ago. So you think about all the people, just like you sitting here today, who were in caves, in forests, wherever they were, you know, sometimes risking their life to be able to do this practice with wild animals around them and not knowing if someone was going to give them food or not, and um, coming really to understand this mystery of our existence and to turn inward in such a way that the potential is there for our concentration to develop so that it can cut through our normal perception of reality. So that's really what we're doing here today, is turning just like those thousands of people for maybe millions for thousands of years have done to to, um, ask these questions. And like the Buddha said, don't take my word for it, but we can experience these things directly ourselves. And then we know what really is true. So in, in addition to the fact that this is a, a starting point, a practice that opens into a very rich, detailed path of practice, there's also some very practical reasons for, to do this practice. And probably one of the most practical reasons is that it cultivates tranquility and serenity. Because we're focusing on one object, the breath, to the exclusion of all else, it allows our mind to rest and not be in multiple places at one time. So it really develops that sense of serenity and helps us. And this today is a very stressful time, both in terms of world events as well as just the advent of all the electronics and and cell phones and whatnot. We, We don't have as much quiet time and silence in our lives as we had even a few years ago. So to take time to really collect and be still with ourselves in silence is quite important. As Tina mentioned, it's also in our experience, and also as this is taught traditionally, this is a practice, the concentration practice, is important because it's a practice, it's a skill set that you can take and apply to other practice areas. So whatever your, your main practice, if it's not this practice, it helps people deepen that practice when they return to it. This, this practice, the Samatha practice, the overall body of practice is, is under purification of mind. So it's uh, a way that the mind stream gets purified. And in part, it's what we already mentioned, it's the, the returning to the breath again and again. And it's also a allowing everything else in our experience. We're not trying to exclude anything. We're just allowing, but being with the breath. And so part of what happens is when you'll see today probably is when you begin to concentrate on the breath, you're going to notice all the ways that you get distracted, all the ways your particular mind and your system operate and keep you pulled away from being with the breath. So this allows us to, again, return. And there's that purification of mind and allows us to work a bit on retreat more specifically with patterns we have of hindrance, resistance, uh, desire, etc. So it's quite helpful in that regard. And what that does is uh, in being with the, the breath, deepening our concentration, electing not to go to the places 
in our mind stream that are, that are habitual distractions to us, we are thinning our sense of ourselves. We're thinning the sense of me and the attachment to me because we are just not giving it that extra energy. So it allows a little bit of that to shift or possibly to shift to where we can start opening to something, the mystery that's who we, we all are. So in Theravadan Buddhism, there's generally thought to be three stages of practice. So just to give you a sense of kind of how this fits into the, the overall scheme of things. And these are sila, samatha, and vipassana. So today we're going to be focusing on samatha. So um, sila is usually the starting point. And, and the three of these really work together in a beautiful way where they become self, kind of reinforce each other. Uh, sila Often it's thought of as morality. We don't really think of it that way. We think of it as a kind of wholesome living. And so this is really a practice of, of bringing our lives off the cushion into harmony with what we know in our inner experience on the cushion. And so there can be a way that we're, like we do this every year, we, we sort of look at our lives and look at where we can um, live our lives as a, an ever greater expression of what we know internally and are there things we want to change or adjust in order to do that more and more and also to not, not do harm. And so we'll talk at the end of the day as we talk about daily practice some of the ways that Sila can be part of that. And so that's kind of the foundation is how we live our lives off the cushion. It's not separate our practice is really our whole life. So that's the, the life we live off the cushion. Then samatha, which is what we're focusing on today, and this, the word samatha means both serenity and concentration. So sometimes people forget that this, they think it's concentration meditation, and they forget that it's also serenity is just as big a part of the practice. And as Stephen said, you know, this is one of the great uses for this as a daily practice is to really in, have a period of time where the serenity can uh, infuse our lives. And coming back to one object over and over, there's a way that it really cultivates um, that serenity. So in the Samatha practice, really what's happening is the mind stream itself is getting purified. There's a concentration of it instead of being scattered, and there's also the serenity that allows for that stilling that makes it possible to be in touch with what is more subtle and silent and still, that mystery of what we are. And then Vipassana really is uh, often called purification of view, so in Vipassana, what we're doing is taking this concentrated awareness and turning it, instead of being inward, we're really, we're in the, in the Samatha, we're kind of turning away from the world. In Vipassana, we're directing our awareness toward phenomena that are arising, either in ourselves or around us. And the potential in the Vipassana is that we can see through to a deeper kind of reality, that's more true, that's more fundamental, that has more freedom. So the three of these really work together in a way that uh, makes a lot of sense and 
um, that they support each other. And like on our retreats, we use a little bit of vipassana to help people with certain phases of the practice. So we really see these as as complementary to each other, and this is how it was taught um, by the Buddha as well. So in in beginning to teach this practice, uh, our teacher, in his wisdom, told us to keep the practices the same, so preserve the practices that he taught. But he wanted us to, in his words, build bridges, find language that would make sense to Westerners, as he put it, about how this practice impacts them and how they can do it. Because he felt like there was a, a gap between the traditional teachings and how we operated in the West. And in part of that, in doing that for Tina and I, we really began to see that this practice, it has uh, two areas really that it's, it's uh, benefiting. And one is a transformational quality meaning that within our personality, within our personal structuring, that gets affected by this practice, by choosing to go back to the breath, to not stay with the distractions, the stories, the patterns we have. We're lessening the grip that they have on, on our awareness. So that would be the, the transformational. And the transcendent side is we are orienting towards the mystery, the unfolding of the path, Tina mentioned that the Buddha uh, studied the jhanas, practiced the jhanas, the first through eighth jhanas. So there's a whole practice path in the samatha portion of the Buddha's path that is aiming us, directing us, or we're directing ourselves towards that mystery. So that would be more the transcendent quality of this practice. So this is a present moment practice, present awareness practice. We're being with the breath in this moment. That's very important. So we're not trying to get anywhere in the future. We're trying to be right here, intimate as we can with our breath. And we're focusing on this one object to the exclusion of everything else. So whatever else is happening in your experience, we want to have you just bring your awareness back to the breath only. If there's thoughts, if there's sounds, if there's other things going on within you or in the room to just do your best to turn away from those as you can. And part of what this does is this is like going to the gym. You're learning to build up a muscle, the muscle of concentration. And every time you turn back, it's like having a, a rep with a weight in the exercise room. You're getting a little bit stronger each time. And that muscle does develop where uh, you, get, you can get more and more uninterrupted time with being with the breath and settling into that stillness and silence. So again, the breath is the object of the meditation and it's in the region we call the Anapana region. It's between the nose and the upper lip and it doesn't have to be a particular spot. We used to call it the Anapana spot, but we found people were looking for a particular spot and for some people, it doesn't work that way. They, their, their awareness is more regional to the area. So whatever it works for you, whether it's a particular spot, whether it's the, the Anapana region itself, both are fine. So that's not something we're going to worry about. So have a relaxed definition of that. And one of the metaphors we use for this, it's like what's becoming outdated now, but in the days when we had toll takers on the bridges here, that you would 
uh, we're like the toll taker. We're in the booth and we're waiting for the cars to go by. It's like waiting for the breath to pass through here. And one of the most common questions or the most common question we get, and we asked our teacher, Pog Saidao, and it's the most common question he gets is, I can't feel my breath. What do I do? And like the toll taker, you're in the booth and there's no cars. So what do you do? Do you go out of your booth and start looking for cars to come in your lane? (laughs) No, you stay there and you pay attention to that little window you have and wait for the cars to arrive. And the same way here, you just try to keep your awareness in this area. And as you get more concentrated, as you get more still and silent, you will make contact with the breath. And we've seen on the retreats that it's 100% of the people end up having full contact with their breath in the area. So not to worry and not to think you're an exception and it's not going to happen. It just needs a little more time to percolate. Yeah, and so we're not saying that in every meditation you do, you would need to use this area. Using the belly is fine when you're doing Vipassana or other practices, but there is a particular reason to focus here uh, in this practice for the unfoldment of the practice to occur. So it's not just an arbitrary thing. And as you're bringing your awareness back to the breath, this can really be done gently. You know, you don't have to push anything away. It doesn't have to be aversive and it also doesn't have to have like a striving quality. You just notice that you've gone off. Be glad you've noticed this was a rep. You know, this is a a rep on the weights was bringing your awareness back builds that strength of the concentration faculty that you already have. You can do it with a lot of gentleness and kindness to yourself. So then what, what is concentration, since that's really a big part of this practice? And it's a little bit unfortunate, the word concentration we also use just as a word in our general language. Um, and there can be a lot of association with the idea of concentration that it takes, that there's a certain kind of striving quality to it or uh, we have to really um, force something. And the truth is that concentration is a natural faculty that you already have. It's just like the muscle. When you go to the, the gym or do exercises, you're not getting a muscle. You already have the muscle. So the concentration is already a faculty of your awareness. It's just a matter of building the capacity within that. And so, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, I have to concentrate now the way you would like if there was heavy traffic and you were driving and you thought, oh, I better concentrate now. You're gripping the wheels harder. We're, we would invite you to lay that view of concentration aside and to remember the serenity aspect that you're just coming back with as much ease as possible but still you know a level of determination and to just come back over and over and as this happens really our definition of concentration is unification of mind so the mind stream that normally is often thought which we need in our everyday life starts to get collected together. So I'll go through the three stages of concentration then that really um, signify what's possible in concentration meditation as the practice can deepen and be available. So the first level then is called momentary concentration, which is also referred to sometimes as 
preparatory concentration as we're preparing for jhana. And the three stages, I'll just say, are momentary access and absorption concentration. Those are the three. So in momentary concentration, um, we're, you know, probably what you experienced in the first sitting. At times you're with the breath for several moments, and at other times you're going off, and then you're coming back and going off. So it's kind of the first stage. And to use a metaphor that's kind of that's a flashlight, this gives you a little bit of a, a visual and a visceral feel for it. If you have a camping flashlight, we have one of these that we've used for camping. Um, there are flashlights that will be a lantern, and then if you push down on it, it becomes a flashlight. So this is more like the lantern, where our awareness is kind of going in a lot of different directions. It's coming from one area, but it's pretty diffuse. And then the second stage is access concentration. And so here we're starting to have more and more continuity with the breath. Usually this would be between where one would be with the breath for five minutes or more without substantially going off the breath. Um, And with access concentration, there's a very big range. So we're starting to settle. We're starting to feel more uh, continuity with the breath. So this could be, you know, five minutes and then on at times and on retreat, we have people on retreat who may be with the breath for 30 minutes or even up to several hours. And believe it or not, this is possible uh, for a lot of people, for almost everyone. We'll talk about this later. Um, and excess concentration at the high end can be very, um, very profound. And the purification of mind that starts increasing as the access concentration deepens can be very profound at the high end of access concentration. And also jhana factors start arising. We'll talk about what those are later. Um, But access concentration still is not full jhana. It's also sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And this is like with the lantern. Now the lantern is pushed down and we have a beam of light that is going towards our object. So we're a lot more, you know, the mind's collecting. We're a lot more with the object, but we're still going off at times. And also the brightness of our awareness is, it's getting brighter and brighter. So in the mind, a lot of times people will, start um, feeling a certain lightness, a certain brightness, and there's just a sense of, of really having more contact with our deeper nature. And then the third stage is absorption, which is jhana. And one of the things that's why it's good to have a teacher who really knows what they're doing around jhana is that a lot of times people will mistake access concentration for jhana because in the high access concentration it's pretty it can be pretty blissful can be pretty unusual and there can be an absence of thought so in absorption uh really what happens the first when this is first part of someone's experience and not not everyone attains jhana. It's something that is a possibility if you're on retreat, on a longer retreat, 
that this might arise for some people. Um, there's a sense of the awareness being pulled into the jhana, so it isn't something that one makes happen. And part of the reason for this is that a full jhana absorption, in our understanding of what it is, is a non-dual state. So what this means is that the sense of a subject, a me, and the object of our awareness, which is the breath and the other, the jhana factors, that collapses. So basically what happens is it's a temporary state where the me is not present. And this is one of the reasons why the full jhana absorption is so profound, because it is a freedom from the me. Even though it's not permanent, it is really profound to have that drop. And then when the jhana falls apart, the person comes back into access concentration, and all of a sudden it's like, I have jhana, you know. But when the jhana is actually arising, there isn't that sense of, of there being the me that's experiencing it. So, um, so this is why the full jhana absorption is profound and why the Buddha kept encouraging people to do it because it's a way to, to gain some experience at crossing this threshold between being a really, having a really good meditation and having a lot of purification of mind. So even in access concentration, the purification of mind that's happening is profound. And, um, but there's something that has to be worked in our consciousness in order for the me to drop. And we work with people a lot with this on retreat because that is a threshold. At some point, the me can't make jhana arise. I don't know if this is making sense, but this is why people get into this push-pull right around that boundary where you ha- there's a surrender. And so this is really, I mean, this is, it's like a snippet of the whole spiritual journey. Ultimately, the path of enlightenment is to be living without that me operating. So this is why it's so profound. It gives us, the other thing that this practice does is it gives us a replicable path where we can go towards that as opposed to having it just spontaneously arise. And there are other ways non-dual states arise. This isn't the only one, but what's really amazing about the concentration practice is that one can experience it in a way that is... um, more purposeful rather than just having it, again, be, be more random. So in, in going on with the flashlight metaphor, then this is when the light of the beam gets more and more and more concentrated, like some of those flashlights you can turn and the beam just gets really narrow, and it becomes laser-like. So this is really the power of our awareness becomes so powerful, potentially, that it can really cut through our normal perception. And we, when we first started teaching, we did some research on lasers. We actually had a quantum physicist who attended one of our retreats and gave us some information. A laser, an actual laser, is, is light. It's a beam of light. But it's so powerful, it can cut through metal. So imagine your awareness getting to a state of concentration that was, you know, had that kind of power and then this is possible to turn towards other, um, other objects. And uh, so there's really a, a possibility of a profound 
purification also in the absorption concentration that's coming from, Stephen talked about the transformational side and the transcendent side, it's coming from directly from the unconditioned, and so it has a different kind of potency to it. So just to give you a sense of how does this work with other practices like Vipassana, these three stages, I've been describing what's possible in concentration types of meditation. So there's, there's two kinds of meditation, those with a stationary object, which are concentration meditations, and those with a momentary object. So in concentration meditation, which is what we're teaching today, Anapanasati, also metta, and then in other traditions, things like chants and so on, you have one object that's pretty much staying the same. And um, that, because the object isn't changing, it's possible to go from access into full absorption because the stillness is part of the object. The object is still, it's not changing. And in momentary practices, the object, really like in Vipassana, at some point in Vipassana, we have choiceless awareness where maybe we're noticing the breath or I'm noticing hearing my voice talking or I can feel myself sitting. The, the contents of the meditation are changing, but what's continuous is the present moment. So we're really, and we'll talk later about what we're cultivating, but in Vipassana we're cultivating a capacity to be with the present moment without getting attached and without putting a, pushing away whatever is arising. So that's an important thing to cultivate. With this, we're cultivating the capacity to turn away from our story. So every time some, a thought comes up that's part of our habitual thinking, we're turning away and we're deconditioning that habit. So both of, these, both of these are important, but they're, they're not the same. So in a momentary practice, one can only get up to access concentration. And that's, I mean, there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of the nuts and bolts of how it all works. So in Vipassana, full jhana absorption isn't, isn't possible, but there are other um, progressions of the path that are possible. I want to add one thing on the absorption. Uh, Tina talked about the sense of me doesn't experience jhana or absorption. It it drops. And that's not to say that there isn't complete awareness. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you actually don't need a sense of a self, a self-referencing quality in order to have full awareness. And also one of the, one of the qualities of jhana in this tradition is no thinking. And the same thing with no thinking doesn't mean that there isn't impulse to do things. If you're in a situation of of eating, for example, you can still eat without having thought on what to do. There's a pre-impulse to thought, and that starts functioning. So just to not to get too far out there, but just to say there is full functioning and there's full awareness. So this isn't a unconscious or sleep state or zombie state in any way. Yeah, and we're not saying that you would be eating while you're in jhana. I mean, the jhana absorption, this is part of why this particular practice is done with eyes closed. There's a whole progression that's possible that happens up to jhana. Um, But even when, like on retreat, if one is experiencing a high access concentration or jhana, off the cushion, there can be long, long periods with no thought whatsoever so the hindrances can really be abated 
And we'll talk more about that and, and what that's doing later. So questions at this point. And I think we have a couple of mic runners. So uh, if whoever the mic runners are could. Oh, great. Thank you. There's a mic. Yeah, you mentioned. Is it on? mentioned the, um, that there was a specific reason why concentrating between the, um, between the nose and the lip, um, as opposed to uh, concentrating on the belly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you could expand on what that specific reason is. And then mm -hmm. uh, you may also get into this later in the day, but I'm curious, you, you mentioned jhana, but you also talked about eight jhanas. Mm -hmm. So you, you, I'm sure you can expand on that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, do, you, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think I'll jump in. The, the, there's two primary reasons why the uh, Anapana region is used for watching the breath. The first is that it's hard, so we have to concentrate more to do it. And the other is as the practice unfolds, it won't, it won't unfold naturally and uh, mature into jhana unless the breath is outside the body or wherever there. If it's in the body, it won't develop beyond access concentration. Yeah, there's a whole... We don't usually give this portion of the talk at day longs, but it's in our book, um, First Sit to First Jhana. There's a whole progression of things that happen. And if, if one isn't working with this area, that progression isn't possible. So it's not just random. I mean, it is, it is a more... Um, one of the reasons why Mahasi Sayadaw, when he really introduced the, the modern, that version of Vipassana that's done in the Mahasi lineage with the belly, was that pretty much anyone can experience that. I mean, it's pretty hard not to notice the belly rising and falling. So it made meditation accessible to a lot more people. And that's one of the great things about it is that it's pretty easy to notice. This isn't quite as easy. Um, so we have, but as, as we've said on retreats, we've never had anyone who hasn't been able to use it as an object effectively after a, a few days. So it really makes our concentration collect a little bit more rapidly. And we'll give you some tips on how other things that can support that process as well. I'm curious about metta. Did you say that that was considered a concentration practice? Metta. Yeah, metta is a con All the Brahma Viharas are concentration practices. They're, um, we consider them, we do teach the Brahma Viharas, we teach them as a, as a four, as a four set, four pack, you know, because we feel they really interrelate in a way that's important. Um, they are purification of heart. That's how we think of them. And um, they work something different than like with the Anapanasati, with the breath, it's a pretty neutral object. It's always present. So this is why the Buddha and many, many other traditions start with the breath, because it's always there. We don't have to do anything to have it be there. It doesn't take any effort. Whereas with something like metta, with the Brahmaviharas, we're actually sort of creating an object in a way. Um, so yes, all of the Brahmaviharas potentially 
can lead to jhana. Um, three of them lead up to a potentially third jhana, one can lead to fourth jhana. So often they're not taught in that context. But yeah, we on our longer retreats we have people we have had people attain jhana with the Brahma Viharas. Because we, yeah. we, we see even there that there's the same dynamic of the transformational and the transcendent. Yeah. Again, it's transforming qualities of the heart and resistances uh, to the Brahma Viharas themselves. And then also there is, there's both a kind of human emotional resonance we can have with the Brahma Viharas and there's an unconditional heart quality, which is more what we're, say, a quality of our true nature, which is more what we're hoping to have contact with in the practice, and that's what leads to absorption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way we teach the Brahma-viharas, a lot of um, people understand them more is where the phrases become the object, and it becomes almost like a mantra. Uh, our understanding of it is that the, the actual object, we love the Brahma-viharas, so we'd encourage all of you to attend um, Brahma-vihara retreats if you haven't done that. Um, between the four, they really offer a a response to any human situation that arises. So they allow us to be in our heart with the world in a way where either loving kindness or compassion, you know, if things are kind of neutral, loving kindness is potentially there to arise. If someone's suffering or if we're suffering, compassion can arise. If somebody's having something great happen, joy can arise. And if if things are hard and we can't understand the bigger picture, equanimity can arise. So, um, yeah. And, and her point is, her, Tina's point is great because these can be self-arising, right. meaning not necessarily that we're doing a, a phrase, but we, when we have enough contact, then they'll, the, the unconditioned heart qualities will arise spontaneously. Right, so the object in the Brahmaviharas is actually the person. It's the other person, and then the potential response, if our heart is, is unobstructed, is whatever's potentially, you know, loving kindness or compassion. You know, these are, one of the four of these pretty much address any situation that can occur in the human condition. Um, let's see, there's... Oh, great, great. <laughs> Um, so is the idea that you should be feeling the breath in that region through the entire inhale and the entire exhale? So I don't think that mic's working, oh. if, um, or maybe it's not on. Can you repeat the question? Yes, yeah, so he, the question was, are we, is, are we supposed to be feeling the breath in the complete inhale and the complete exhale is that, yeah. in that region? Yeah, so the answer is yes, yes. You're just resting your awareness. So I'll talk later about some of the differences between samatha and vipassana. Um, but yes, you are noticing the, the entire inhale, the entire exhale in this region without going into the body. Or, or away from or the body. Or out, out of so the we're, body. We're, your awareness is staying of the breath here. Yeah, not upon a region. Yeah, yeah and you're not really investigating. That's one of the big differences. Again, investigation is really important in Vipassana. It's a big part of it. With this, the serenity part is emphasized. So as long as you know the breath, there's no noting. So we're not noting anything. Am I taking this away from another part of our talk? No, go ahead. Yeah, so just to be clear, since we're going to have another sitting um, 
in a little bit, there's no noting. So in Vipassana, some versions of Vipassana were noting the breath is warm or cool or long, you know. Uh, we're not doing that. We're not investigating to figure out things about the breath. We're just resting there. As long as you're noticing the breath, that's really all that's needed. And some, sometimes it's helpful for people to think of it or consider it that they're being with the breath. Mm-hmm. So it's not a doing. We're just, we're just right. being with the, our awarenesses with the breath. And it doesn't matter if you can feel the inhale better, the exhale better. It doesn't matter at all. Whatever you're feeling there, and if you're feeling nothing there like the toll taker, just wait. Yeah, and that's a great opportunity to really be in touch with the serenity, with the resting. You can relax. You don't have to do anything. And another um, pointer with this is that we've, we've found that a lot of times people, there's a sense, you may notice this, of like looking at the breath. And so it's possible to actually be with the breath where, where the awareness and the breath are one. So that might be something to just um, feel into. And, and, and Tina's point was we're not using our eyes. So if you find yourself using your eyes or you're, or you're getting headaches or your eyes are hurting, that means you're using your eyes to try to bring the awareness to the breath. Well, and there's and also, it's like there's a me who's looking at the breath. And so again, just, you know, that's what we do. We have me's that do things. Um, but it's possible to actually be with the breath in such a way that we're just really resting there uh, in a way we're resting as the breath. Yeah, let's do one more. We got one more back there. Okay, great. Hi there. Um, It seems like first thing we need is the motivation, because it seems like it does require effort. It does require an effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, got to sit our butts down and absolutely. And my, I remember my uh, one teacher said a beautiful thing. He said the more. The more focused our attention, the happier we are. The more scattered the attention, the less happy we are. Um, that could be a motivation to, mm-hmm. be, because surely pleasure is the mother of motivation. So surely we have to have experienced a pleasure in order to com- continue to repeat the discipline. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about jhanas, it sounds delicious and forgetting the efforter, forgetting the meditator because the absorption is so full. Right. What, what I always find is, is the two major things that sabotage my efforts. One is drowsiness and the other is um, not just restlessness and scattered uh, thoughts coming in, but forgetting that you're thinking. Forgetting that you're thinking. So you're just right. on the roller coaster of constant <laughs> thinking. And then this discouragement from that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're really talking about both, both the mode, the effort. Yeah. So this is really, or you have to have the effort to come and practice. I mean, if there's no effort, we'd just all be home watching TV or something, you know? So yeah, there's a, there's a skillful effort that we bring really, what is our call to practice? Is it, freedom from suffering maybe is it happiness 
Is it enlightenment? Is it to know reality more fundamentally? Whatever your motivation is, it's really important to have that be part of um, of sitting down and really being in touch with that. So that might be something to be in touch with at, before we do the next sitting. What? Why are you here? What? Why is this important to you? And to just really feel in your heart what is drawing you to the practice because that is what keeps us going. And we will talk a little bit about the hindrances later, not a lot, but um, the way we understand the hindrances is that when you have gone off, first of all, we all have conditioning that has, that we've, you know, we come into, we're born and basically infants don't know anything about anything. And so the world around us conditions our perception of reality in such a way that certain things get reinforced and other things don't. And that creates personality patterns. And so that's what's pulling us off, is the habitual patterns. We all have a software program, basically. And meditation, we're trying to upgrade our software program. So it's kind of like a self-upgrade. Every time you realize, oh, I've been thinking, and you come back, you're rewriting the program. So there's no reason to feel discouraged about it. Just the fact that you noticed is, um, is a, a line of programming in your new software program. So this is our understanding of it, is that, um, that every time you catch yourself, just be kind to yourself and know that you're doing the very best that you can and bring a good effort to it. You know, there's a balance between the relaxation and the effort that's really key in this practice. And, and as Tina said, every time you choose to return to the breath, that is a little slice of purification of mind. So right. you are doing it every time you return. Right. Every time you come back, you're sort of challenging that habitual pattern and, um, and creating a new like groove in the consciousness. Whatever's taking you off is a groove in consciousness. And in our daily lives, we don't see these things. These things run under our awareness all the time, automatically. They're like self-operating programs. When we meditate and we try to be with the breath, we get to see what they actually are. That's kind of the, you know, you know, the unpleasant part. But it's really good because then you're getting some insight into your inner workings. And when you turn away from that, you're sort of challenging the compulsiveness of that pattern. And you're, you're de-energizing it in a certain way. So it's, it's great every time that you go off and you see that and you come back. So we're going to take a short break now until 11.15. Uh, a couple of things about the break. One, if you want to do some kind of walking meditation, in this tradition, there's no formal walking meditation. There's no particular way of doing walking. It's a matter of staying with the breath. That's our primary function. So whether you're walking fast or slow is irrelevant. It's being with the breath. So see what you can do on the break about staying with the breath, noticing when you're off. Sometimes it's helpful to just stop Again, reestablish contact, your awareness of the breath, and then continue on with what you're doing and just see what happens. Yeah, and if you do want to do walking, I can't tell if it's raining anymore, but you know, going, doing the back and forth walking is fine. Just see what it's like to be with the breath instead of 
with the actual movement of the walking. In this practice, especially like on retreat, that continuity, really you're with the breath. The intention is to be with the breath from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. So today is an opportunity to just practice, you know, what's it like to just return there? And even in daily practice, you know, in the grocery line and other places, it can be a place where you're just resting. And there can be a lot of peace in that. So we'll uh, break until 10.15. I, I will be up here for a few minutes. 11.15. Or 11.15. Uh, I'll be up here for a few minutes uh, for questions, and then I'll be taking a bio break, and Stephen is going to take a break um, during this time. So if anyone has questions one-on-one, I'll have just a few minutes for that. And we'll ring the bell uh, when it's time to come back. Welcome back. So we're going to do a period of meditation now, and I'm going to read the instruction for the meditation. And one of the ways that you can support the meditation is by what we call counting breaths. And the way that works is you have one inhale, you have one exhale, and then there's a very light one that's like a place marker. And it goes between the out-breath and the in-breath because that seems to be, even though it's a very short period of time, that seems to be the place where the mind tries to escape and leave the breath. So the counting can be helpful. And you can try it if you wish and see. And again, it's an inhale, exhale, one, and then you drop it when the inhale starts. So you don't you don't maintain the counting, and it's important to remember the counting isn't the object, because people will sometimes really get good at the counting, but they forget about the breath. And so we're counting from one to eight is the traditional way that we were taught, and then eight back down to one. And this is helpful because if you find yourself at 32, you know that you've well exceeded the eight, and this way has to be a little more mindful. You can recognize, and also it allows one to see uh, perhaps, oh, I got to five this time or four this time. So this was maybe a little better than last time. It was three. So, yeah, and not to do evaluation. If you, if you find yourself at thirty-two, just be gentle with yourself. And and if then you find you're judging yourself, be gentle with that. Don't judge yourself for judging yourself. You know, it's it's all you just you're doing the best you can, bring as much effort as you can. And the counting, we do the counting. If you think this is kind of rudimentary, when we're on retreat, we do counting for the first, you know, however long it takes, day or two, um, because it really accelerates uh, the concentration. You can really tell a lot sooner whether you're wandering or not. So you can try it. If you don't like it, you don't need to do it. But it's it is one of the one of the supports that then at some point you let go of that. But you just need to make sure you're, you're actually, you're not doing one like that because then the one becomes the object instead of you're breathing in, you're breathing out, and then the one comes in out too. So that way when you drop the number, 
you still have the breath, which is really your main object. And, and as Tina mentioned, we mentioned earlier, really being as gentle and kind with yourself as possible when you find that you're not on the breath is really important. Because otherwise what happens is there starts this, the mind starts thinking of all the criticisms and then you get caught up in the criticisms and then you're gone with that for a while. So really, sometimes I think about this for myself like I am helping a two-year-old down the sidewalk and on one side is street and one side is bushes and I want to keep them in the middle. I'm going to really gently, you know, okay, sweetie, back over here, back over here. Uh, if I'm going to be harsh, it's not going to work very well. So in the same way with our own, our own awareness, it's not helpful to be uh, harsh with ourselves. So the, the nicer you can be, the more gentle, the more helpful. Oh, there's a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's one there. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, a right. full cycle, so, in, out, one. And then, mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're, we're trying to mark between the, the out-breath and the in-breath. That seems to be the, the place where the mind tries to go off. Right, so you're with, the, really, again, the breath is still the object, but you're just marking at the pause between the, you know, when you've done the out-breath and you haven't breathed in again yet. That's where the, the just really light, what? You know, it's just a whisper of a number. And then back up to eight and down to one. And it's like a walking meditation. You're just going back and forth. How do you know when to let go of the numbers? So the question is, how do you know when to let go of the numbers? Mm-hmm. And uh, the easy answer is, they feel awkward. You're getting concentrated and it feels like you're just carrying around extra stuff you don't need. Yeah, so. they're clunky. You know, it, it feels... It's like, you know, you're using crutches and then at some point you can walk, you don't need them anymore. And you can notice if it's too early because if your awareness wanders away, you know that, okay, maybe I need to go back to the counting for a while. So it's not a problem to drop it for a while and return as needed. So just experiment for yourself and see what's supportive. There's one more question back there. Okay. Usually, so the question is, the counting, do you start over at one when you get to eight? Normally, the the instruction, this is what we got from the side out, and we like it, one to eight, eight to one, one to eight, eight to one. And somebody, somebody asked us once, when you get to eight, do you then go to seven or do you go to eight again? And we, and we, and, and we, we, and we found answers. out we did it differently. <laughs> we never talked about it before. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's compl- so just it's, go wild with this that. This is where the freedom of the practice is. You get to choose how to do your eight. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and settle in. <clears throat> Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight, your shoulder blades relaxed down your back toward the floor, and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and upper lip, the Anapana region. The object of this meditation is the breath. You are to be with the breath as it passes the Anapana region on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath, being with the breath as it passes across the Anapana region, 
gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method to support concentrating awareness is the count breaths. It's suggested to count from 1 to 8 and back down from 8 to 1 with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single in-breath and a single out-breath is one. Once concentration begins unifying, you can drop the counting if you like. Notice if your awareness has wandered. If it has, bring it back to the breath with kindness. If your awareness has wandered from the breath, <coughs> gently invite it to return. In these last few moments, before I ring the bell, see if your awareness can stay close to the breath.
So how was that? Any comments? How many people tried counting? Great. How'd it go? So it was harder for you. Okay. How come, do you think? Any sense? I wasn't able to... I was like ending up concentrating on the counting rather than the feeling and the sensation of the breath. Right. Yeah, so the, you were focusing on the counting rather than the sensation. Yeah, yeah good I observation. the counting sort of go into the background and keep happening. Okay. Well, well it's good to know about yourself yeah. for right now. So a question that came up for me, um, when I hear about the practice, I imagine my awareness being kind of all or nothing, either it's on the spot or it's somewhere else. But what I was experiencing was more um, in the middle. So sometimes I would kind of find it slipping too far in my body, or I would find myself following the number rather than the breath, but it wasn't the same as being completely off in distraction right. either. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, great question. Uh, this is important, that this is the way that we often think about it initially, is that either we're on or we're off, that it's really very much like a light switch, on, off. And really what it's like is more like a dimmer switch. So we can be on a little bit, we can be on a lot, and that changes as you were probably seeing as well. Based on when you were there, everything was kind of in the zone, as the athletes would say, at other times wandering or coming in or out of the breath, uh, out of the body with the breath. So yeah, that's a great observation. Now that is how it works. Comment, brother? Yeah, it, it, um, sometimes we encourage people to think about like what percentage were you on? I mean, you don't want to get into too much analysis, but that's sort of a way of, of um, understanding it. And I know, like for me, as my concentration develops, I can stay with the one to eight, and then I'm thinking in between the counting. So, you know, this, but it's showing that the concentration's improving and they're still thinking. So, um, so one way of thinking about it is that uh, without like over efforting, can you increase the clarity a little bit? You know, so if the clarity's at, 20% or 30% of the breath, can it be 40%? You know, so we're just always trying to um, to unify the mind a little bit more without it being stressful or striving or over-efforting. Yeah, but that's, I mean, even to notice that, you'd have to have enough concentration to notice that that was happening. So it's a good sign. Yeah, and there is a dynamic that we're, we're Tina just spoke about, we're alluding to, where there in this practice, there is a certain amount of efforting and a certain amount of relaxation. Mm -hmm. And we can't give you a hard line on what that's going to be like for you. This is really an individual process of understanding. But there's times when you do need more energy and you do need to bring up the energy or concentration. And other times when it's there, when allowing a more, more easeful state is helpful. Up front. Okay. Yes. Go uh, hello. Uh, uh, since I feel that uh, I am quite conditioned of uh, breathing, feeling the belly, the bre here, down, down here, 
I felt it's quite linked when I try to concentrate on natural. It is difficult just to break <laughs> one, mm -hmm. one part to another, like it's all linked. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a habit, you know, it sounds like you the way you have practice has been at the valley and that that was true for me and for a lot of people who come to us from vipassana. You're not taking that away. It'll always be there when you do vipassana again. But with time you can make the switch. It's just like you're bringing you're bringing in another tool into your toolkit. So you know, it just takes some, some repetitions and some time to be able to notice the breath here and not sort of go back to the belly as your, you know, your resting spot that you've had, I'm assuming, in Vipassana. It just takes time of staying with it for a while. Somebody actually came up the break who was trying to um, move their the place of practice and, and, and the home practice. They did it for, it took a while, a couple months, but eventually you can have it where now you have two options. You know, it doesn't take the one away, you're just adding to what your capacities are. So we can think about this like if we're an artist and you're used to using that particular brush, that belly brush, we're now adding, introducing one more different kind of brush. And with time you'll learn how to use that and when that's appropriate, as Tina's saying. Mm -hmm. And there may be more brushes in time you add to your collection. Um, up here? Oh. I got really tired, and uh, I started out with the numbers, which worked, which I didn't think was going to work, but it worked. And then I thought, oh, I can, I got this. Now I'm going to go without the numbers. And then I did that for a while, and then I started drifting off. And then I tried to go back to the numbers, and it didn't work. I, and I, I just think I just got too tired to think about all of it. And mm -hmm. so I kept trying to... I kept drifting off. I would go back, but I would drift off more than I did in the beginning. And so I, I found that I just couldn't, I got too tired. I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sleepiness is, is a common hindrance that comes up. And um, should we talk about it now or say yeah, that? Yeah, let's do it now. Yeah, Put so. It glass. Oh, it's okay. I, I don't need it. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, so it's a common thing to have happen. And, you know, in the modern world, what we find, like, especially on retreat, people come, they're tired, they're sleep deprived, you know, so it may just be that you need some sleep. And it's telling you that. Um, normally, what we recommend for people is, like, if that's happening regularly, either it's one of two things, either you're not getting enough sleep, or it's an actual hindrance pattern of sleepiness. It's one of the five hindrance patterns. I mean, sloth and torpor is how the Buddha talked about it. So one of the things you can do is you can stand up. I mean, standing up is very skillful. A lot of times people feel funny doing it, but it's a skillful way to address sleepiness, not only in this practice, but in any practice, because it's pretty hard to fall asleep standing up. It brings some energy to the body. Um, so that might be something to consider, just, you know, real quiet. You know, you don't disturb anybody. Just stand up and just meditate. And then when you're done, you can just sit back down when you feel like the energies come back up. Another thing would be open your eyes a little bit. Let some light in. That sometimes will bring the energy up. Uh, you can just maybe put a little bit more effort in. Sometimes just having, uh, you know, remembering your intention for practice 
as a way to kind of increase the energy around doing it. So these are all things we can do with sleepiness. At some point, everybody will encounter sleepiness in their practice. So have you tried any of those? Yeah, opening the eyes. Well, when okay. I do Vipassana, if I feel it's mm -hmm. eyes, but I think you said don't open the eyes. So I, um, I, it didn't occur to me to do it. This in trying, yeah, I was trying yeah. to do this technique. Yeah, so I right. I was really trying to stay on it. And so I felt more... It was more difficult for me than uh, my regular practice to keep on. Right, yeah. And, and so I'm thinking I'm just tired of doing, or, or maybe I just need to work to, the concentration itself is making me tired. Mm -hmm. I know, see. My brain can't she doesn't have the mic anymore. Stay on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the concentration, well, we are right before lunch, too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, there is, it takes a certain amount of, energy to do concentration meditation. And this is why we really encourage people to be well-rested. Sometimes in Vipassana, there's an encouragement to kind of push yourself and go beyond sleep needs and such. With this practice, it takes a certain amount of mental energy. So it's, you know, that may be something that you're noticing is that, um, you know, that, that you may not have as much as you might need right now. You could do, like, doing some fast walking do a little faster walking maybe at lunch if it's not raining. That's a way to increase the energy or even to have, you know, some tea with some caffeine and that we aren't opposed to that. Um, so these are all ways just to increase the energy so that you have what it takes for the mental energy to do the practice. And, and for everyone to feel comfortable to please stand up if you wish during meditation periods if you feel tired today. Yeah, especially after lunch, that's a common time to... Uh, get a little sleepy. Question back here. Yeah. Um, you had said, um, don't look at your breath. And if you notice your eyes hurt, and I just, that kept happening to me. And I think I'm, I must be very visual because I <laughs> kind of, I had a hard time not doing that. Sure. And immediately my eyes hurt. <laughs> kind of yeah. gave me a little headache. So. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. The, the remedy usually is to try to remind yourself to have soft eyes. That's a really important part of this practice, is just to let the eyes rest in sort of a straightforward angle, and, but really soft eyes, that helps a lot, and see. And this may be just an area you need to refine. There are some people that just are really, they're eye, uh, eye, eye concentrators or something. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was thinking in my mind's eye, you know, I, yeah. I, I think I'm just kind of geared that way, but. Yeah. yeah, you okay. could even try really relaxing your eyes. Like when you first sit down, maybe, you know, take a belly breath and just really see if you can just sink into the chair. And also, like, there's a way of allowing your eyeballs to rest in the sockets. I, and, I, I did try that. Yeah. But then I think, my God, you know what I mean? Then right, there was then nothing to... Oh, I, 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 guess I'm, I guess my question is, and maybe you can't answer it, but... That's, I think I'm so focused on that kind of awareness. I don't know mm -hmm. if there's anything, especially if there's not a physical yeah. sensation, kind of. Yeah, you're pointing mm -hmm. to something a little bit different here, too. And that is, it's, th this is a practice that it's important to include your heart. This is not just a head practice. And because it's mm -hmm. centered in the head, it's easy to make that assumption that we're cutting off from the neck down and we're not at all. 
So we need our belly, we need our grounding, we need our heart and the heart qualities. We're not, we're not actively trying to include those, but we're not excluding. So let your whole self be with you, be with your awareness and the breath. I'll give it a go. We have one over here someplace. So to feel the sensation, yes, I felt like I was forcing it, exerting. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to, I didn't know, kind of, should I just back off of that? And I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you try relaxing a little bit and see if you could still notice the sensation? That might be something to try. Just see if, you know, breathing itself tends to be relaxing. So, you know, just to notice it and maybe even have a breath where you take a little bit deeper breath intentionally and, you know, and then notice what happens if you let go of some of the effort. I mean, we have to have enough effort to stay present, but this is introducing a little bit more of the relaxation. And and this is an edge in this practice that people work all the way up, you know, and at, at some point... Um, there's a surrender, but we're still showing up. There's still a being present that's needed. So you're really working with that that edge there. Yeah, the, the, there's an artistry to meditation, and that's part of what we're pointing to, is you have to be have a fluidity a bit in the moment of what's right now happening in this moment. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, I found myself trying to control my breath, like I was trying to create some sort of rhythm that I could count to rather than mm. just breathing. Yep. Yeah, so it's sort of, um, yeah. The, inten- yeah. the intentional breath. Yeah. It's almost like in walking meditation, breathing with the walking. Yeah. And yeah. So, you know, just, you can just let the breath be as natural as possible. And, you know, for all of you, if the counting is getting in the way, you don't, you don't have to do it. It's just a tool for some people, it's very helpful, but you know, not for everybody. Just it, let the breath be however it would be naturally. And, and if you find you are being intentional, then, then do it for a couple of breaths and then see if you can stop. Okay. Yeah. One over here. And we go one over here after that. Yeah, um, hi. Hi, hi. Uh, yeah, one question. When your mind wanders from the breath, I found myself going to the body sensations or my feelings, kind of like in Vipassana. Uh, but you're saying that we shouldn't do that. We should just uh, go straight back to the breath and not explore what you're feeling, right? Or how your body sensations, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between this, right, and the, the other technique. Right, right. In Vipassana, because it's a momentary practice, which they're good too, um, we're really just following that thread of whatever is predominant in awareness, the choiceless awareness. And and that, as we said, cultivates a capacity to be with what is without getting attached or rejecting anything. In this practice, what we're cultivating is the capacity to turn away from habitual patterns that are keeping the me in place, basically. And so we're cultivating something a little different, and that's why we just come back to the breath every time. I got it. Okay, yeah. thanks. It's, it's like with exercise, you know, there's cardio and there's strength training. And both of them are doing good things, and they do kind of overlap a little bit, but they aren't identical. They're, each of them is cultivating something particular that's valuable. And we all favor the ones we know well. 
So that's a common approach. People will sometimes want to do the meditation that they do a lot of and then do a kind of a little bit of a leap into this meditation thinking, well, I've got a good head of steam, but this one has to be built from the ground up. But, but you're saying that so cardio and weights, you're saying that only one of them, though, can, can get you past access meditation, access... Um, concentration. Access, access concentration, right? And only right. the one that's permanent, not Yeah, any, any momentary concentration practice, which includes Sheik and Taza from Zen, as well as Dzogchen, Mahamudra from Tibetan Buddhism, um, those are all momentary practices also, but concentration is still essential with those. It's just that because they're momentary, you're not going to go into a full absorption in them. It, it, it requires a practice that is a concentration practice in order to get to that level of absorption. So if you start with Vipassana, if you're there, you can then, can you, tr- uh, can you trans, um, translate or can you, um, can you move into this concentration um, that you're doing now and then mm-hmm. from there go to access to to absorption? Yeah, I mean, there, are you talking about within a sitting or within yeah. your practice? Or a within a sitting. Within a sitting. Normally, in a sitting, you would be choosing which practice you're going to do. I mean, if you're doing Vipassana, a lot of, a lot of the early Vipassana instructions are about the breath. But, you know, it's kind of wherever you feel the breath most predominantly, so it isn't as specific. Um, but usually, there's a settling in that will happen at the beginning of Vipassana anyway. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily be switching back and forth within one sitting. Normally, what we recommend is to pick what your practice you're going to do, even maybe for a period of weeks or months, and really do that one to give yourself a sense of um, deepening within it rather than sort of switching back and forth. That's our suggestion. Okay, okay. So let's take one more question. We've got one here. Go ahead. Thank you so much for being with us today. Mine's more of a reflection on um, what I observed with my own meditation was I was counting and there was such an eagerness to count with my exhale that I found myself practicing restraint to you count in between versus mm-hmm. on the exhale. So just thought I'd, I'd share that and was curious right. if you had any thoughts or reflections. Yeah, there's that that sort of, you know, the number's kind of there waiting. And so you at the exhale, you're starting to do it. I mean, all these things, it's over time, one gets into a rhythm where these things aren't as hard. But again, if you find the counting is too distracting, you don't have to do it. But yes, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to what you're saying. And I, I notice that sometimes I'll even do that. I'll say, know that the number's kind of waiting there at the pause and, and it starts coming up into my awareness. It's, yeah. it's pretty interesting on retreat as people get more and more concentrated and deep. They can start seeing the pauses between the out-breath and the number starting and between the number ending and the in-breath starting. And there just gets to be such a sophistication of awareness that uh, you know there's nothing to be done. You just, it just happens. But it sounds like you're observing for yourself. Yeah, the good thing is if you're noticing all this, you're not lost in thought. So all of these things are good. And you're and, not asleep. And you're not asleep. <laughs> and, you know, so, yeah. Okay. okay. So, um, yeah. Yep. So I wanted to talk about Donna. We're going to break for lunch and say a couple of quick things. One, when we first started teaching 10 years ago, we did some research and reading on Donna, which is translated mostly from Pali as generosity. 
And one of the most interesting references we saw was that the Buddha wouldn't teach anywhere where dana wasn't present. And that was such an interesting idea that generosity had to be present. And of course, presumably there wouldn't be dana before the teaching, so somehow he had to have a perception that there was generosity present. And for Tina and I, we really got to see the relationship and the importance of our own generosity to our own receptivity. That if there's a closeness about the, the giving or the um, open-hearted giving, then there's a way the heart can't receive or can't receive as well. So that became a very interesting practice tip for us. And this is one of the paramis, one of the perfections that uh, spiritual people are in the Buddhist path are encouraged to develop is uh, generosity dana. Uh, practically speaking, the money you pay for today goes to Spirit Rock. None of it comes to Tina and I. This is how it's set up, and we agree to it um, with no problem. And so we we teach, we come, and this is our dana, our offering mm-hmm. to do the teaching. And then we ask, open it up for dana uh, to be reciprocated. And there's baskets out in the lobby for that, and you're uh, obviously welcome to do so. But that... Uh, puts it in a context we can understand about both how it's a spiritual development as well as there's a practical side. Any comment? I was just thinking as you were saying that, that um, we did a month long, was it a year ago? Yeah. And that was a big leap of Donna for us, to teach for a whole month without knowing what kind of reciprocity would be present. And we've always been very touched by people's generosity. So... um, so our generosity is being here, and we're really glad to be with you all today. So enjoy your lunch. So and, we are going to um, break for lunch now. Yeah. It is going to be a silent lunch, and um, we would encourage you to do your best to stay with the breath during this lunch break. So we'll be meeting back at one fifteen, and just just notice the times when you're not with the breath, if you can slow down a little bit and have contact. And remember again, it's a dimmer switch. It's not 100% or zero. So sometimes it's possible to be on even 10% while you're walking around or taking care of your business during the break. So see what you can do. And it sounds like you're welcome to eat in here if you want. Um, Looks like maybe it's not raining. So you're welcome to walk, take a walk and um, enjoy your lunch break. Welcome back. So we, we touched on this a little bit, um, but we're going to start off this afternoon talking about differences between the Samatha and the Vipassana. And because a lot of you are Vipassana practitioners and the two do um, harmonize in a way, and yet there are distinctions between them. So as we talked about earlier, in what is being cultivated in each practice. We think about them like exercise where um, strength training is really cultivating the muscles being developed and our body alignment and other, other good things. And the cardio is cultivating our, you know, our overall health and our cardiovascular system and so on. It's the same thing with these practices. 
So in the Samato, what's being cultivated is this ability to, because we have one object of awareness to the exclusion of everything else, we're really cultivating the ability to come back to that object over and over again and to turn away from the stories that really these stories make up the me. They make up the self. And in Buddhism, we have you know different ways of understanding that patterning, either through the hindrances or what's called the defilements, which are kind of more deeply ingrained patterns. But each of us has patterns of consciousness. And as we... Um, as those arise and try to, and, and the attention goes to them out of this habit, out of that programming, if we want to call it our original software program, when we're turning back to the breath, we're deconditioning those patterns and we're allowing for our consciousness to abide more um, consistently in in this case, the breath, but then that over time can be translated to our deeper nature. And there's more and more capacity for us to be able to abide there. So that's really what we're cultivating here is the ability to, to turn away from those patterns and, and rest with, in this case, the breath. In Vipassana, we're, what we're cultivating, because whatever uh, is arising in the moment is the object of awareness, and that could be something really pleasant. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a, f- a feeling or a sound that's beautiful to hear, the bell, or it could be something unpleasant like a pain in the leg or a difficult memory. And so with the Vipassana, whatever happens to be arising in our awareness that's predominant, eventually with Vipassana, we get to the choiceless awareness stage where we're just with that object and really we're cultivating not rejecting that, the content, and not getting attached to the content. So that in regular life, when things happen in our life, we can bring the same level of um, presence but non-attachment to whatever's happening in our life. So so these are both really good things to be cultivating. With a samatha, like for example, if um, say that somebody was driving down the road, we're driving, and somebody, you know, cuts in front of us that's maybe creating a dangerous situation, there might be a reaction to that. And that might be appropriate to prevent, you know, something bad from happening. But an example of the samatha would be instead of kind of mulling over this, whatever the undesired thing is, for a long period of time, there's more capacity to just turn away and come back to something neutral instead of that whatever it's happening kind of hooking us. And, you know, situations like this happen every day where either something happens and we really want it, you know, and then we get into a loop of really wanting it, or where uh, we don't want something and we get into a loop with that. And so this is how it translates into everyday life. So you can see what we're cultivating in the two is different. And the turning away doesn't mean that we're aversive. So like when we're coming back to the breath, we're not having to push away whatever's arising. That's not really the kind of energy we want to bring to it. It's fine for whatever's arising to be to be. It's just that we aren't going to it and attaching to that thought normally when we're meditating 
and um, giving it energy. So really what we're doing is the thing, whatever it is, comes up. We're just coming back to the breath. And it, over time, the, the habitual patterns that we have, they get de-energized. So the, it's like the energy that our awareness has invested into keeping them going just starts kind of weakening. And at some point, I mean, this can be over uh, a home practice or on retreats, we find for ourselves and for our students, pretty much everybody who does the practice long enough, um, some of these patterns can actually be put down. And you find that something maybe that triggered you a few years ago, it doesn't anymore, or it, it triggers way, way less. And, and this potential is true in Vipassana too. But because in the Samatha we're really cultivating the turning away, um, there's a way that that gets developed a little bit more in a pronounced way. So really what we're doing is we're, it is like a software upgrade where over time, you know, our, our programming is different than it was before we were meditating. And we can see in our lives, I mean, usually it's with the perspective of time that this is possible to see, but you can see that there's whole patterns of suffering, really, that just aren't active anymore. And something has to replace that. And that's really the, the potential of the path as, you know, we really see this as, as a, a multi-lifetime journey where we're just continually having less and less suffering and more and more happiness, harmony, and also more contact with reality, with the reality that's underneath all the programming. Another difference between the practices is like with the samatha, we're really, it's an inward practice. The eyes are closed, true with Vipassana too, but it's very inward. We're kind of withdrawing our attention from the senses. And the awareness is sort of, it's almost like it's going um, out of our physicality and to, from the form to the formless. And we're orienting to the unconditioned mystery. And... Um, there, we won't talk a lot about this, but in the progression of jhanas, there are eight jhanas. And as one, you know, potentially can experience going to the more and more refined states, ultimately there can be experience of the unconditioned that is the mystery that's manifesting you sitting here right now and everything around us. And where, where does all of this come from? And where does it go when we die? You know, it's, it all starts with the breath. And how do we know that somebody is dead? They're not breathing anymore. So as you're orienting just by being with your breath, there's a way that we're orienting toward this mystery of existence, of the human experience, and really um, turning away from our conditioned reality. And so there's something really powerful in that, and this is why the Buddha really encouraged people to do the samatha first, because there's a whole thing that's happening in the mind stream where the consciousness is getting purified so that the hindrances are reduced. And we'll talk about this later with the jhana factors, but basically as your practice deepens, the hindrances go down and something else replaces the hindrances in your consciousness. And so the mind stream becomes very malleable and, um, and then that can be turned towards 
phenomenal reality in the Vipassana in such a way that we can, in the Vipassana, we're, we're um, penetrating, we're, we're permeating the reality around us. So, so the Samatha is kind of penetrating the, the mystery of the unconditioned formless, and the Vipassana is permeating the conditioned reality, our thoughts, where we're investigating all of that, as well as phenomenal existence. And, you know, it's possible in Vipassana, as the practice progresses, to really uh, experience conditioned reality in a different way and to sort of break away from the, um, the gravitational pull of the personality. And that's true in the Samatha, too, but we're really turning directly towards the mystery with the Samatha. And that's... Did you want to add something? And that's really summarized... Often these are called purification of mind in the samatha. So we're really, it's really the mind stream itself that's getting purified. And then in vipassana, it's purification of view. So our view of reality. And the two, you know, the two do bleed over. I mean, we've had, we've had people on our retreats, long-term vipassana practitioners sometimes, who say, I actually had more vipassana insights on this retreat than I ever have on a vipassana retreat. You know, so it's not like the two don't intermix at all. Um, but they are they are kind of cultivating different things, so they really do complement each other, and um, and people will find may take a period of even years where they do the samatha, or people may go back and forth and do a period of time with samatha and then a period of time with vipassana, and it's really your practice to decide what's right for you if you want to pursue this practice more deeply. So, so one of the ways we talk about on our retreats about working with the personality patterning and the various the various uh, ways that we can get caught not being with the breath is we started talking about it in uh, what, what we call the surf zone, and this came from um, uh, Tina's uh, certified scuba diver. And we began talking about the seeing people at beach dives. You know, you see them put on all the gear, and then they, of course, walk backwards into the water. And we really realized that's really a great metaphor for this practice because there's a way we're focusing on the breath, and we have no idea what kind of resistance or mental habit is going to come up. And so, being using the surf zone, we we talk about it where it's you're initially on the shore, getting all the gear on, getting yourself set in your place, and all that, being with the breath, and then it's this backward march into the water. And initially there's the ankle waves, which are the waves of mostly uh, things in the environment. Oh, it's too hot in here, it's too cold, someone's sneezing. It's all the things that if they could change, it would be so much better for my meditation. And, and then it starts going more interior, the things inside that we start having resistance to. So again, the waves get bigger and bigger because they become more... We're, we're, we're in contact with the larger places of resistance and the places where the personality is more clinging to maintaining itself. And over time, as people back through this water and have the various restrictions and objections come up, and knock them around, sometimes people will lose their way. They'll just get to where they are completely fantasizing or deep in thought over here. 
And for those of you that are planners, the planners get really busy right in here. They're, you know, well, I've, I've, I, we had somebody come to an interview and they, they were planning their next retreat while they were on retreat. <laughs> and this person actually did that on every retreat they went on. <laughs> so, I think so, there's a pattern here. So they got to see a pattern. But anyway, so whatever, whatever your, your particular flavor is, you're going to see up close and personal. And eventually, if there is enough of the right kind of effort to stay with the breath and, and the right amount of relaxation or ease, then one does. You do move through the smaller waves into the larger and eventually move past where the waves are breaking into the still water. And this is where, in the example that Tina gave about the, the three levels or types of concentration, the momentary would be the first, sort of the first part of the, the waves, the little waves, and then the axis might be deeper into the water where some of the larger patterns of mind are going to be destabilizing if they come up or be at least throw off your, your nice silence and stillness. And eventually everyone moves to out to the still water and that's where it, the practice progresses from that still water. We might say that we then can open up the axis, which would be more of a deep dive into the stillness of the deep ocean. So something like that. So we use this. It helps us to think about it. And then working with students, we also talk, talk about it in this way that sounds like you're here or you were there. And, and some people, as Tina said, see patterns. Some people have a pattern where they, as soon as they get knocked around somewhere, they, they get up and they actually leave the ocean entirely and go back to the sand and then get all their gear together. And then they start over again while others can sort of clean up right where they are and continue. So we get to see all, all those sides of ourselves. But... Anyway, so that's a, we find a useful metaphor to talk about this practice. Yeah, so really the, the hindrances, if, you know, probably for everybody here, hindrances happen. And it's, um, it's easy to think something's going wrong or I'm not doing it right or everybody else is just sitting meditating constantly on the breath and I'm not. Hindrances are normal. Everybody has hindrances until you're completely free of the me, which is the fourth stage of enlightenment, which there's maybe, you know, 10 people on the planet who are at the fourth stage of enlightenment. I don't know, small number. We're going to have some hindrances, you know? So um, so there's a way of looking at it that, uh, you know, in this practice, it's a little different. Again, going back to the Samatha and the Vipassana and the differences, in this practice you would just pretty much try to turn away and come back to the breath. And so what's happening there is we're breaking the pattern and the compulsiveness of why the thoughts are arising and our awareness goes to them instead of just ignoring them. So that we're not, again, we don't have to be aversive to it, but we're, we're deconditioning our consciousness. And with the Vipassana, like say you had a pain in your leg or there was a thought pattern that came up, we're really investigating it. We're going into it more to see the, um, really to see the unreality of it, to see at some point it will either pass or it will break up or it'll dissolve or turn into something else or whatever. And so the way we work with hindrances is different in the two practices as well. And again, each of those ways of handling hindrances is um, is useful and is cultivating something different. And, and, and just as, as a reminder, the five hindrances are desire, one, ill will, and, Ill will or aversion, two, sloth and torpor, 
So sleepiness, restlessness, and remorse is fourth, and fifth is doubt. And so these, it's fair to say that everyone has all of these. What we do see is people have a particular flavor where some are kind of more predominant in their experience than others. So you may be more of a desire type or, or aversion type might be more, you might see as distraction. So that's common to see. But, and, and also, as Tina said, it's, it's an expectation that we're going to work with these, that these are going to come up. It isn't like uh, they're not going to happen. We've told students that in retreat that when we do this practice, we don't expect not to have hindrances. We don't expect not to have things coming in, thoughts and patterns of mind coming in initially and trying to disrupt the concentration. That's part of the journey. Yeah, and in Buddhism, there's the the three patterns. Stephen talked about desire, versions, and delusion. Those are the three core personality patterns, and it can be useful. Or defilements, we call them. De- their def- defilements is the traditional Buddhist word, which sounds a little negative. Um, so we just call them personality patterns. But basically, <laughs> they're they're obscurations in our consciousness, and so that's why they, it's given that name. But there are ways to work with that. We won't go into this today, but like we use the Enneagram. Uh, with our long, with our year long, uh, we have a year long mentoring group, and if so, if there are ways that you have that are part of your understanding and practice to understand your own personality, and and see how um, it's kind of like if we can see inside of these things, they start the attachment to them starts waning, whereas normally whatever our patterns are, they're just operating, and they're so much a part of us that we don't actually see that it's a pattern. So I'll talk about this, a good transition. Well, so I should talk about thinking thing. mind first. So, so the one aspect of this is the recognition of this is me versus this is a reaction I have. So for example, with, the, with desire, there's if, if I could only get the room quieter, if I could get more cushions, if I could have something different I want, if the food was better, if my room was better, you know, whatever it is, then everything would be great. So it's, that's the patterning. And then realizing, oh, this is what I do when I don't want to be here. So this starts getting to be some insight, as Tina said, and it's the lightening of this. So it goes from really unconscious to conscious, and then it doesn't quite work the same after that. You recognize it more and more coming up and saying, oh, yeah, there's that hindrance pattern, that defilement pattern. I recognize that. Speaking of that. Yeah, so I'll talk more about that in a minute, but wanted to just touch on one um, hindrance pattern that is really common with this practice in particular. And a lot of people don't know about it, and it's called sinking mind. And some of you may even get it today. Um, it's, and, and the opposite of this is rising mind. So these are actual Buddhist terms. We didn't make them up. Um, rising mind is when you're thinking too much. So there's too much energy and that is agitating the mind. Sinking mind is the is kind of the opposite of that, where the concentration is higher than the energy. So over time with this practice, most people will encounter sinking mind at some point. It's a state where there may not be a lot of thought, but there isn't a sharpness, a clarity. It's kind of like this dreamy sort of, um, you know, place that is pr- pretty pleasant actually, because there's enough concentration that one is not lost in thought. But it isn't actually crisp. There isn't actually a like a clarity of the breath. 
and um, and this is called sinking mind. It's kind of like the nap room for your mind. Where you go in, you're not actually asleep. You're, as Tita said, you're awake, but it's just it's dark and it's kind of warm and it's kind of a little fuzzy and you just feel like you're wrapping up in a blanket and one can spend quite a bit of time here. I've actually heard, you know, read like descriptions of meditations and, and things where people are trying to get there to sinking mind because it is pretty pleasant. And the bad news is that some people think sinking mind is actually jhana. We've had people come and, and describe what they thought was jhana and it was actually sinking mind um, because it is pleasant. So it just, you know, again, it's not to beat ourselves up about it, but just to know that there is a potential in the practice. Like every retreat I go on, I get sinking mind because my concentration is greater than my energy. And then it's, you know, on retreat, we give people tools to balance these out. And then when the energy comes back, then you can have the concentration, but you have the clarity too. And then the practice really starts going. So it's just a stage. It's just a stage that some a lot of people go through when they're doing concentration meditation. And, and again, one of the big distinctions is in the sinking mind, it's dull. It's like, yeah. a, it's like a flat black looking... Or it could be like cloudy. Right. But it's just, it's just kind of murky. While with, if the energy and concentration are balanced, there's going to be a real sharpness and a kind of aliveness, that's almost a sparkle to the, the inner experience. So you can just tell there's clarity there. Right. Okay, so going on then to really what we've been talking about is this progression through the, the hindrances in the surf zone and uh, to really purification of mind. And everything we've been talking about, every time that you realize that you've gone off into thinking and you come back to the breath, you are um, purification of mind is happening. And so what do we really mean by purification of mind? Because this is, in our view, this is the purpose of the practice. The pur- if John arises, that's great, but pretty much everybody can experience purification of mind. On our retreats, 100% of people experience purification of mind. And so good things are happening, just like in Vipassana, if somebody doesn't reach the first stage of awakening and is still doing Vipassana for 20 or 30 years, there's a good benefit there. So... You know, we we would encourage you to be open to the idea that the whole purpose of this practice, like if jhana doesn't arise, that nothing good is happening. That would be equal to saying in Vipassana, well, if I did Vipassana for 10 or 20 or 30 years and didn't reach the first stage of awakening, nothing's happened. It's just not true, you know? So for us, this is really why we emphasize purification of mind so much. So there's two sides of what's happening. Stephen talked about this earlier. There's the transformational side, which is really this kind of composting of personality material. And then there's the transcendent side where we're actually experiencing directly our deeper nature and the mystery. So I'll go through some of the stages in each of these two they're really two sides of the same coin of the practice. Whenever you're meditating, one of these two things is happening. So on the transformation side, the way it can unfold is that at first a person is just completely identified with their patterns. So when something like um, the, the driving the car example happens, something happens, I get reactive, and it's just I believe it, and I'm completely 100% identified with 
my personality pattern. And this is where we see somebody going out of their car. We had this happen in Marin a few years ago. And shooting someone who cut them off in traffic. I mean, that you're pretty identified with whatever the pattern is there. So I'm not saying we all have that level, but this is kind of an extreme case where the person can't go, yeah, I'm triggered, you know, I know I have a little bit of anger issues, and this is a pattern, and there's, it's not what I actually am in my core. So at first we're completely identified. At some point we can start seeing that there's a pattern there, that something in my consciousness, something in my conditioning... A lot of times, I mean, all of this conditioning comes from our life experiences. We can see how this got into place, where it came from. And, um, and then at some point, we can start seeing that this pattern really isn't me. It's just a software program that isn't really what I am at my depth. And I can start getting some space from it, where it's not completely... I'm not completely identified from it. And then there's more opportunity once we start seeing these as patterns. Then when the thought starts coming up, whether it's in meditation or in your life, there's the possibility for what we call the off-ramp. So you can either, you know, you're with the breath, and then the thought starts coming up. You can either go over there, or you can take the off-ramp and come back to the and stay with the breath or come back don't even go over there and when the concentration is high i mean it doesn't have to be that high we can actually start seeing when these thoughts are arising and we can also see it in our life like you know you may have had this experience with the practice you're already doing where some trigger will you'll know you have a trigger a pattern and something will happen and instead of doing what you would have done in the past you don't do that anymore and it's like, wow, I really suffered a lot less because I didn't just go into that habit anymore. And so there's the possibility of not um, getting hooked into it. And it's not compulsive anymore. And so then the potential is that we can actually drop that pattern completely. And instead of that being there is a whole freedom in our consciousness and in our experience that wasn't there before. And that's really, that's a piece of liberation. So this is the potential with us, and this is why we really encourage people to work, instead of just saying, oh, that's just thinking, you know, to, and especially on retreat, we can start seeing everybody has a fairly, you know, there's a a smaller number of patterns that most of us have as our core sort of architecture of the personality. And as those start getting... You know, we're basically composting them and they become part of what is available in our awareness to actually be in touch with our true nature. And that brings me to the transcendent side. So this is the side where we're basically digesting all the personality material. On the on the transcendent stage, this is really we're talking about being in contact and having direct experience of our deeper nature. So everyone starts out where Maybe there isn't any contact. And unfortunately, that's probably the majority of the people on the planet right now. That's where we all start. Maybe we've had some as kids. Maybe there's been some experiences that get us interested in practice. And so then we start, you know, start getting interested in exploring and meditating. And then there's some contact. 
Maybe you've had some experiences that really were profound for you. And even if it was only a second or two, or a minute, or if it happened once 15 years ago, it's like the most profound thing that you've ever experienced. And so then it's like, yeah, I know there's something more, and I want to I be in touch with that more. And this draws us to practice, because we know that it's like a deeper truth, it's a deeper reality of what we are. And that's very, very compelling. And so over time, we can have more and more contact with that. And at some point in this process, usually people encounter some kind of existential fear. And that is the fear of being without the me. And so when I talked earlier about this, this um, threshold that we see of people between the high access concentration and the full jhana absorption, that's, that's the line where it's like, um, you know, the, the me, the personality that each of us has, has served us in some way. And that's why it's there, because it was needed. So as those, as those pieces of our structure of the me start getting digested, there can be a sense of... of um, of feeling what it's like on the other side. So this all has to be worked through. And the good news is that with more contact with our deeper nature, a trust starts deepening. And we start really knowing what we are. And it's not just an experience anymore. It's like, I am this. When, I, when I'm in contact with that and having that experience, that's really what I am. And it starts being the most profound and real experience of what we are and then our trust deepens and the fear starts diminishing. So it's really a beauty of our consciousness that usually these things don't happen too fast. So, you know, people a lot of times get frustrated in their practice, nothing's changing, nothing's happening. It happens at the rate that is going to be um, compassionate for each of us. And over time, this leads to what we call the thinning of the me, where those layers just get thinner and thinner, and that contact, that direct knowing of our deeper nature, it's, it gets paid more and more thin to where that experience can be direct more and more often and with more and more continuity. And that's the transcendent side of purification of mind. So you can see the two really go hand in hand. And, and um, one of the great things about this practice is that uh, it, it, because we hit hindrances harder, I mean, with, with the concentration, you've got a very small object you're coming back to all the time. And um, they're going to come up in such a way that it accelerates things. And so the potential is that it can also accelerate the thinning of the me. Bhante G talked about um, uh, the word jhana in its original origins uh, is linked to, is it japeti? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which means burning up. And so this really is pointing to the burning up of our patterning that happens in this practice. And sometimes when the purification of mind is really 
going strong and the access concentration, this can happen in Vipassana too, you can really feel like something in your consciousness is getting burned off. And it feels good. I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of a hurt so good sort of thing. Um, it's intense, but you can feel that something really important is happening. Bhikkhu Bodhi talked about the purification of mind as like a tilling of the soil. So there's a way where these practices are, um, are preparing fertile ground. It's like if you have seeds and you put them on really hard dirt, you know, that's really compacted down, nothing, they're not going to be able to get in there and grow. And so the Samatha practice is really tilling the soil of our consciousness so that there can be more profound access to our deeper nature. And then as, as the practice goes on, we talked about how the hindrances start decreasing. And in the, the practice we're teaching today, the Samatha, in the yogic tradition, the eighth jhana, the, the fruition of this path is full enlightenment. That's how it's considered in the yogic tradition. And part of the reason for that is that the hindrances are gone. So even in access concentration, for for anybody here who has experienced that, you can really experience a, a huge diminishment and even an absence of the hindrances. We On our two-week retreats, this happens all the time where people are really free of hindrances, maybe for days at a time. And even though that will wane when the concentration wanes and when somebody leaves retreat, that is a taste of enlightenment. To be free from the hindrances really is one way of defining enlightenment. And so even though it's temporary, it's like it gives us a taste of what's possible, not just for the Buddha or for some teachers, but for me, because I can go on a retreat and know that my consciousness is capable of being free from the hindrances. And then, so what happens is, as the hindrances drop, what replaces that in our consciousness? Well, what happens is, in this practice in particular, what's called the jhana factors arise. So these are are conditions in the mind that are closer to our deeper nature, that, um, that start coming into our awareness when the hindrances decrease. So, uh, as Tina mentioned, the jhana factors arise, and I'll start off by saying these were named in an unfortunate way. Because to call them jhana factors, people often have the mistaken idea that because they arise, the jhana factors arise, that means jhana is present. And regrettably, it does not. The jhana factors can begin to arise in in early access concentration. They can start. So they go all the way up through and into jhana. So they are there too. And I'll just mention them very briefly. And uh, what's important to remember is that the jhana factors aren't an emotion. They're not a product of our, of our mind or a product of our thinking. These are qualities that arise from our concentration. They're byproducts of the concentration, just like steam would be the byproduct of boiling water. So the first jhana factor is vitaka, which is we translate as applied attention. And this you've already done. You've been applying your awareness to the breath in the anapana region. So that is the vitaka. Uh, that continues on all the way. 
uh, in, up the path. So that's a, uh, the first jhana factor. Then vichara, which it, we translate as sustained attention. So this is when the awareness is resting on the breath and you're not having to do anything. So there's a period of time where it's just staying. And that, that's the vichara. And that's where it starts developing into where the longer and longer periods, the more you're sitting and the more stability there is, then the, the deeper the vichara will will be. Uh, third jhana factor, PT, which is normally translated as joy. And really it's... Um, the PT really has a range, and we could say joy in the very pleasant sense of our inner sense of just a kind of happiness, a joy that's in our system. And the PT can, there's sort of a range up to rapture. Sometimes you'll see it translated as rapture. And what it is, is that there's a certain energy that comes with the PT, and our theory is that for some people, they actually need a stronger level of PT, a stronger level of the joy closer to rapture to help purify their system. So anyway, I don't get stuck on the labels, but it's it's within a range there. Did you want to say more about that? Yeah, just um, it's the, the PT can can range from very mild to very intense. And, uh, you know, I've had, I, especially like during my year long solo retreat, I had it almost the whole year. And, um, we feel that there's something that's getting cleared out in the consciousness, but it can be extremely pleasurable and it can also get to be too much at some point. So, and again, jhana factors, I don't know if you said this, but they can arise doing Vipassana also. It's just that they won't actually lead to jhana. They can arise in any meditation where there's momentary concentration and access, which is virtually all meditations. So you may may have experienced these at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fourth jhana factor is sukha, which normally translates as bliss. And the distinction between PT, joy, and sukha, bliss, the PT is more bodily felt. So it's more of a body sensation of joy. And the sukha is more of a mental. So it's more... A, um, a bliss, which is not a great word, but a kind of happiness of the mind, uh, an effervescent happiness where everything is just great as it is. So it's kind of a, almost a bubbly happiness. But mm-hmm. the distinction, again, PT is body and sukha is only in the head. So that's one way to delineate. And then the fifth jhana factor is ekagata, which is one-pointedness. And the one-pointedness, we could talk about it being something like Tina did with the, the lamp, the, the lantern or torch for some of you, that when it's dialed down to that really, that really uh, laser-like quality, that's in part representational of our awareness being with the breath. So we, are, we have such a concentration, such a laser-like awareness that the awareness is on the breath in such a way that you actually can feel like I couldn't take it off the breath if I wanted to. It's it's staying there by itself. I'm kind of not doing anything, and there it is. I mean, of course, you are with the breath, but there's such a sense of it it happening. It it for most people, it feels like their practice takes a step up. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. there's this there's this very deep uh, quality of connection of the awareness with the breath. That's unmistakable to them. So 
Among the caveats with the jhana factors, sometimes people will experience jhana factors and, for example, the, the piti, the joy, and will decide that looks like a very interesting meditation object. And so they will switch their concentration, their awareness from the breath to the feeling of joy somewhere in their body and in an effort to increase the joy, which uh, in, this, in this tradition, we don't do that simply because that's the byproduct again. So if we turn our attention, like if we're boiling that water and we get the steam from the water, if we aren't paying attention to the heat under the pot, then we're not going to get steam. So that's what happens here is that if you move the attention to the joy, for example, the PT, eventually the concentration starts waning and starts going down and thinning and you've got to build it back up again. Because right, you're off the breath, basically. Right. This is one of the great aspects of this practice is it, it isn't easy because we have our own resistances that come into play, but it's, it's actually a very simple practice and it's simply bring your awareness to your breath and the rest unfolds. So there isn't really a lot of a lot to do. I mean, there's a lot of sort of fine-tuning of what does it mean to keep the energy and the concentration and such balanced. But it really is a simple practice. Of, and in fact, our teacher, Pak Slido, he, <laughs> when, he, when he was teaching in Burma, he would have hundreds of people lined up every day for interviews, and they're, of course they're all on their knees. So literally up. like 100 people in a line. And they come up, and he's just sitting here, and just come up, and so everybody hears whoever's in front of them. And the standard answer that he, we're, we're told he gives, you come in, you say, oh, side out, this is happening, and this is happening, and he'll say, how long could you concentrate here? Oh, you know, two minutes. And he'll say, focus here, and that's it. Next person? Next person. Yeah. <laughs> and so the people we've known that have gone to the monastery say, you hear him say, focus here a lot. <laughs> and sometimes we'll have people who have done a long retreat or a series of retreats with us will come to us and say, you know, that focus here actually is a really good instruction. <laughs> that really is all you have to do. But it's just, it's hard to get there. You know, it takes a while to get past our resistances and our personality orientations to where we can just focus here. So the, so the jhana factors, just to be clear there, even though the, word, the names of the jhana factors sound like emotions, these are byproducts of the concentration that only come when our awareness is starting to get concentrated. So it's not like we, you know, we could whip out a Hallmark card and now we're feeling joy or something. Or um, I can give you a puppy. Or, or listen to music or, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, those are all good things. But these actually are something that happens because of the concentration. And when, when it's in, happening to you, you know it because it's not like other experiences of things that we would call joy or bliss or happiness. It's, uh, it's a very distinct kind of um, uh, sensation in the mind stream that's pretty, uh, pretty non-ordinary. Can I say one more thing on mm-hmm. this? And that is, I wanted to just finish with this uh, thought on jhana factors that, again, the jhana factors will s- can start in access concentration. So in that surf zone, as soon as we're in the water and there's some stability, again, as soon as there's some vichara, some sustaining, the jhana factors can start showing up. But they continue on through that surf zone out into the still water and until there's deep diving going on. And the jhana factors, as there's deeper and deeper concentration, the jhana factors just keep increasing. And at some point, all, all the jhana factors, all five of them have to be at a certain 
a certain level and it's almost we talk about it sometimes like being like a frequency that they've got to get high enough so there's, there's a particular frequency in your consciousness that matches first jhana and then somehow first jhana draws the consciousness into first jhana so mm-hmm. there's something very well first jhana doesn't but the the uh, unconditioned awareness does uh, but anyway uh, the point is they continue on into jhana and they do comprise first jhana but they're at a level that's higher much higher than access concentration do we want to say anything about first through fourth jhana go ahead yeah so the, so the all five jhana factors are present in the first jhana and then as um, as the concentration continues to deepen different jhana factors drop off so because we're not needing to apply and sustain our attention to be on the breath. It just like your awareness is just on the breath continuously. Those two drop off, and then second jhana rises, and that's mainly has the tone of the the PT, the rapture. And then at some point, the concentration keeps. It's like you know this lens just keeps getting more and more um, unified and powerful, and then the the PT drops off, and what's left then is the the sukha, the happiness, and the one-pointedness, and then at some point, that's third jhana, and then at some point, more and more concentrated. It's like the the one-pointedness just keeps going up and up and up until in the fourth jhana, what's left is the one-pointedness, and then upaka, equanimity, arises. And so each of those, I mean, there aren't that many people who will experience all that, but... um, there's the opportunity also to let go of our attachment to spiritual states. So, you know, this is another level of purification of our attachment to certain spiritual states arising because at some point that becomes a limitation in the practice. So that's a good um, transition to the topic of striving, surrender, and spiritual materialism, which we always have to talk about when we talk about this practice. So when we started teaching, it was, it's really, you know, it's been an interesting journey because, uh, like, my first exposure to the practice, I was sitting a month long at, up at the upper hall, and um, I, was, I used to mostly take the yogi job of cleaning the women's restrooms and so somebody cleans the men's restroom so we would see each other every day and at the end of the retreat we talked and he said um, he uh, was saying that he had gone to this retreat and John is this and that and I didn't know anything about it Um, but it sounded like a lot of um, it it sounded like merit badges to me and so I wasn't very interested so I, I didn't follow up on it or do anything with it but um, that was kind of, and then, you know, you know our story, so I won't go into that. But that was the climate when we started teaching. And um, unlike with Vipassana, where the, the attainment aspect of the practice has not been emphasized very much, with the Samatha, unfortunately, it was, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know if it's a Western culture thing or if this was probably done in Asia too, but there was a lot of emphasis placed on the attainments. And it's kind of unfortunate because it, uh, it de-emphasized the purification of mind, which is really uh, a part of the practice that is available to everybody, whether jhana arises or not. And so, you know, how did this happen? In, in Asia, 
what happened was that this practice ended up being reserved really just for monastics who were already at the first stage of enlightenment. So until about the last, well, really until Pauk Sayadaw became prominent in Burma, um, the only people doing these practices, the only people who even had access to the teachings were monastics who were already at the first stage of enlightenment. So what, how did that happen? And um, we, we found that there's kind of four reasons in the development of Buddhism that caused that. And the first is that there was a question whether or not lay people could do it, do the practices. And so this is why it's been really exciting. Like for Pawak Sayadaw, when we were at that retreat, he was just, I mean, he was really beside himself with glee because here he had all these lay people coming and people were progressing in the practice, you know? And since then, there have been people who have progressed. So, uh, so it's not a true thing, but I think there was a question about that. Um, there was also a concern that knowing about the attainments would lead to striving. And so that is, that is um, something to be aware of in this practice, and that's why we talk about it so much, because there's a way where we have to bring... This is a rigorous practice, so we won't deny that that's a truth. It's rigorous. But um, there's a point at which, you know, we talked about that, that zone where the surrender really becomes one of the most important things in the practice. And if there's too much striving, it actually limits a person's progress. And um, so the way that we have chosen to work with that is to really talk about it and to have that be part of the purification. Because probably for, I'd say, almost 100% of the people who really take this practice as something they're going to do, you'll have to deal at some point with the, I want to get jhana you know, kind of um, me sort of, um, it's, it's, it's a desire pattern. And that can move into really a wholesome desire for liberation that is actually great fuel for the practice. So there's that fine line between the two that really we all work with, and we've, we had to work with that as well. Also, um, there was a concern that people would get addicted to bliss states, and um, we, we really haven't found that to be true, and it wasn't true for us, but there was some concern about that because the jhanas are pretty amazing experiences to have. And, um, but there's something in that purification of the consciousness that prevents, in our view, that prevents people from getting stuck. And then lastly, this isn't much of an issue in the West, but in Asia it's very present, which is there was a concern about the abuse of psychic powers. So if you read um, texts like the Visuddhimagga, there's a whole training in there on the, the way that, um, that within Buddhism it was thought to develop the, what's called the cities was through the use of the jhanas. That was, one had to be attained all the way up to the eighth jhana in order to do those practices. So there was concern that without having stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, that people might abuse those powers if they had access to them. And so this is part of why it was kept secret. So, you know, Westerners often don't, aren't really into that, but in Asia, it's, this is very much believed. And um, even today, we, when we're traveling in those communities, we often will be asked about these things because, of course, we've both attained up to the eighth jhana. And um, 
So we get asked things like, are you reading our thoughts right now? And, and we, say, we'll say, we say, no, that wouldn't be polite. <laughs> <laughs> we, no, we tell them we don't read thoughts. Yeah, so anyway, so these were the, but you know, it's good to have some context on where did this practice come from and how did it come to be something that wasn't included in Buddhism, even though the Buddha talked about it over and over again, it was being included, it just was being done privately. In, in, the, in the Burmese tradition, in the Ajahn Chah tradition, which is really where spirit rock comes from more, um, Ajahn Chah was highly, highly attained in the jhanas. Most people don't know this. And he, it was reported that he would be able to have jhana rise in one breath. But it wasn't talked about because, of course, as monastics, they can't talk about their attainment levels. It's against the monastic code. And so the... You know, this was something known in the monastic community, but in the lay community, it wasn't really discussed very much. And now we have teachers like Ajahn Brahm who are talking about it pretty extensively in that in that lineage. So, really, all this just to say that um, that one of the things that's helpful in this practice is to understand that each of us has a whole bigger unfolding of our path than anything that we can make happen. And there's a certain kind of wisdom of um, really showing up for our practice and putting our whole heart and mind and self into it and then also surrendering to some larger mystery of our own unfoldment. And if spiritual materialism right, you know, happens, then we work with it as part of our practice, just like anything else. And, you know, for all of us, there's a ripening that we can, it's, it's like an avocado, you know, you can um, make it ripen a little faster if you put it in a paper bag, but you're not going to, you can't like put it in the oven and make it ripen in an hour. There's just a certain maturation and ripening for each of us that, uh, that is a mystery. And to trust that and to have some sense of surrender to that while also um, showing up as fully as we can for our practice is, is part of the wisdom that can get cultivated. So we feel that the, the Western Sangha and even you know the Sangha worldwide is really mature enough now to... Um, come to these practices in a way that has a robustness and yet also has an understanding of, of, um, of surrender and of the larger mystery that's really unfolding everything right now. So I guess we'll take questions now. Uh, so I'm glad you were addressing some of the uh, oh. concerns the concerns about studying jhanas, and I've been um, I've been wondering why there aren't very many classes in samatha uh, that that are offered. Whereas there's a jillion vipassana classes, but very few on samatha, and yet that was the basis that Buddha started with. And it seems like it's it's almost uh, not necessary, but sort of. It's like going to college without going through kindergarten, grade school, junior high, and high school. 
So I'm confused why there's not more offerings, mm-hmm. you know, in the West. Yeah, well, some of it is what I was just talking about. I mean, when you have to sort of go back historically to how this all happened in the West and how the teachings came over. And um, there's a you know very prominent teacher who's now deceased called Mahasi Saidao, who really, Theravadan Buddhism was really, um, it was declining in Asia even, and it wasn't at all over here at that time. This was... <coughs> I guess in the 60s or and prior, 50s, 60s. And he he had a relative who really was a lay person, wasn't going to become a monastic, who really wanted to meditate. And so he looked at the teachings as they were and thought, is there a way to make them more accessible to lay people without actually changing the teachings? And he came up with the Vipassana, it's called the brief method, that is what mainly came over to the West. So in Burma and other countries, that became very popular and a lot more people started practicing. There was this whole revival of Theravadan Buddhism. And then when the Western, when the Americans went over there in the 60s and 70s, that's what they learned and brought back. And it focused just on Vipassana. There, there are, there's one sutta in particular that the Buddha said where you can just go to Vipassana. And in, our, and in the Pawak lineage, Pawak Saidao does have that as a possibility. We have in our book, there's a practice chart. The problem is, for, and the only reason, like in our, again, in our lineage, one would only go straight to Vipassana if you were trying and trying, trying to do Samatha and you just couldn't do it at all. Then there'd be the option. But what happened, because there's the, the one main sutta, that says you don't really need samatha, that became kind of the base of what was brought to the West. And, and it is true that the Buddha did say that. So that's kind of how it happened. The other yeah. aspect, too, is, as Tina said, th- this was being practiced only in the monastic communities by monastics. The samatha. So it wasn't being introduced to lay people by and large. So, and, and even when we started practicing, there were only one or two books in English. There was not much around at all. There was the Park Sidow's book. Well, Park Sidow, and then, and then Bhante G had a book which he, he did his dissertation. Oh, right. We, yeah. had, we had that book. It's so there so wasn't a lot. Insight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, but now, of course, there's a lot more. So it's kind of like there was a, a resurgence or a. Somehow it landed yeah, here. The teachers, I think what happened is, is the, te- the Western teachers here also matured in their own practice and their own teaching. There's, there's a lot of debate within Theravadan Buddhism as to the role of the jhanas and samatha and whether it's necess- what is necessary for what stage of enlightenment. And so I would say... This whole thing is controversial, so if you haven't figured that out yet, I'll just say it. Um, but I'd say there's probably a pretty good consensus that to get to the second stage of awakening, you pretty much have to have at least the first jhana. So I think as the Western community started to mature themselves, people got a lot more interested in concentration, and, and so then it started get, getting it more incorporated. And so now you will see retreats at Spirit Rock on... They don't call it samatha. They mainly focus on concentration, but it's you know in the in the spirit of what we're talking about. Pawaksaida really changed things. He really shook things up in Burma because he wasn't from the Mahasi tradition. 
he went around and he's extremely, his picture's back there on the table if you want to see it. Um, he's very well respected, very scholarly, very much uh, an amazing meditator. He never wanted to be a, an abbot. He wanted to be a cave yogi and, or, well, forest monk. Um, a meditator. Yeah, and um, he felt that the Samatha was just crucial because of his scholarly knowledge of the, of the suttas and the Visuddhimagga. And so he really was the one who, he and Ajahn um, Brahm, oh, oh, and also um, Ayakema. Right. Yeah, so there were a few teachers who started really bringing it back and, and we're now kind of in the, we're not at the beginning of that wave, we're sort of getting into the middle of that wave now. Does that That's good. explain it? Yeah, I just would like to see more classes, you know, offered in general. When I look through, all, look online to see and do a search on concentration retreats, there's just so few. Right. Well, you can come to our retreats. I <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Ask Spirit Rock. I mean, there are teachers yeah. who are are a lot more. There are a, a growing a number of teachers in the Spirit Rocky Teachers Council and so on who are very interested in concentration and who have been part of this move to include more concentration. So, you know. Well, and yeah. also some of the some of the misunderstandings have been challenged. Yeah. Be, because when we started practicing, there was a belief that Westerners couldn't do it uh, at all. So that that began to be disproved, and it's being disproved all the time now. So that's clearly erroneous. But so a lot of these things were holding things back as well. Yeah. And there's a oh, why don't we take that yeah. gentleman right there? We we don't want to be forgetting the side hey of the guys. room here. Um, yeah. I'm I'm looking at uh, a question and answer. Um, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm sort of astonished at, at you guys and this whole business of access. I mean, I've been sort of struggling in a very haphazard way for about 45, 50 years with mantra meditation and uh, more of a Hindu thing, more of a bhakti tradition, not even beginning, I think, to still and focus. I mean, maybe beginning. And you guys are like talking like way over my head about access and jhanas. And I've read Ajahn Brahm, so I'm a little bit familiar. And I do remember a few times when I do the 10-day the uh, spirit rock things with Jack once in, in the desert and with Christopher Titmus once at Angela Center. I remember for me, it took, I, funnily enough, it took me five days and five nights to get here. And it was quite funny to me to see that it, actually took five days and five nights to be here and it was it happened when I was doing the walking meditation so in this somebody asked Pa Ak Sayadaw I have heard that even for your monks and nuns who practiced with you for a long time not everyone can attain jhana that some people do and some people do not is that true he answers Yes, if they practice diligently, they can control their mind and they can attain jhana. Some people cannot control their mind because their mind is always wandering. There is one reason it is not easy to attain jhana. Their sila may not be so strong, their effort is not so strong, and their wisdom faculty not so sharp. 
And because of this, the four, four accomplishments, desire, consciousness or mind, vigor and discrimination or the wisdom faculty, are not strong enough to enable them to maintain their concentration. Boy, so that really speaks to me. I'm wondering if you can clarify it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure what that last part was, frankly. Um, I couldn't understand why he says desire is an accomplishment. Maybe desire to make progress? Can you repeat the desire port part yeah. of it? Um, the reason is that sila is not strong, mm -hmm. uh, effort is not so strong, and their wisdom faculty is not so sharp. And because of this, the four accomplishments, desire, consciousness, or mind, vigor, and discrimination, or the wisdom faculty, are not strong enough to enable them to maintain their concentration. Yeah, well, he's just citing some of the some of the hindrances to the practice unfolding. You know, he he tends to um, emphasize the effort part a lot, and so a lot of people that we've known who've gone to him have circled around over efforting in such a way that um, wasn't that useful there for their practice progressing. And this is one of the reasons why he asked us to build bridges. And so we've, you know, without changing the actual practice at all, we've found ways for people to work with their psychology in a way that can get in there and sort of open these things up instead of just kind of hitting it with a hammer over and over again. And that was what he really wanted us to do because he was coming like to the forest refuge. We taught there within the, the second time, I think, that he, mm -hmm. he did a retreat there. I mean, these retreats are like two to four months long. And people were spending four months and not progressing. And so he wanted to find a way to make it more accessible. And that's what we've been trying to do for 10 years. And, and so. part of what we've seen is for Westerners, we aren't short of effort. You know, we're, we're, most of us aren't born as Buddhists. We, we choose to come here for some reason. So we have a motivation. That's not a question. And the side I was speaking more of his experience teaching in Asia, where a lot of people are born into Asian Buddhist families. And so he feels as though they don't, they don't meditate enough, they don't put enough effort in, which is his perspective. It may not be true or false. But we just found as Westerners, that's not helpful. To, to, to tell you all the effort more, try harder, um, you, you know, that's not going to get us very far. Right, it's so... Just, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm, no, I'm done. Yeah, so, so that, I mean, we can't really say what he was meaning by that. We can just say that this is what we observed on the two-month retreat we were on. And also in hearing about a lot of our students who've gone to study with him. I mean, he's an amazing being. When you're around him, you can tell that he's very attained. But for him, he, you know, he would have two or 300 people a day coming up. So unless you were already at first jhana, he just would, it was sort of like a mill of people coming through. And you know, he, he started practicing. He ordained when he was like 10 or something. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't remember what it's like to be in the surf zone. He has no surf zone. Well, the, so we, well, we're well, close the, enough to it that we can help you there. You know, I mean, that's really, if, if, it's like people say he's really good 
from you know, base camp. From base camp to the top of Mount Everest, he's good. He's not so good from sea level to base but camp. From, so yeah, we're, but that's where everybody camp. is. There's like you know, ten thousand people. So we're trying to get people you know from sea level to base camp, which is really first it to first jhana. That's where everybody is, you know, and that's really what we focused our teaching on. He, he, Paul Pollock is really, as Tina said, is really quite a scholar. When we would go in for interview and you ask a question. Uh, I think I'm efforting too much, you know, what do you think? He first quotes his answer in Pali. So he gives the Pali answer, quoting verbatim from a sutta. (laughs) Then he gives you the English translation saying, Lord Buddha says, blah, 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 blah. And he tells you which sutta it's from. So he never says, this is my opinion or my experience. He said, this is what the Buddha says. So he's extremely scholarly and and very much believes, believes in following the monastic code for himself. So, but anyway. he won't deviate from that. So we've kind of filled that in with a lot of modern stuff that makes it a little bit more um, possible to kind of tease apart. When I'm hitting that wall, what do I do? Right. And and that's where you know we try to offer some additional options that are still consistent, but um, give more room to to progress. And and, and the side out, bless his heart. You go to him in interview and you say, "I'm having this psychological issue," he and said, he says. I don't know the psychology stuff. Yeah. So it, it just and, and as Westerners, we have a lot of this. We have a lot of this process in our process, and so it needs to be included. So back here. Hi. Can you speak more about sinking mind and how that would fit into your metaphor of the waves and um, what what's suggested to do about that? I definitely mm-hmm. experienced that. Sinking mind. Yeah. Well, we don't really have it as part of the wave surf zone metaphor. I mean, I mean, I well, suppose it's yeah. like going into a little, a little eddy, a little nice, warm <laughs> eddy where the sun's nice and the waves. There's no waves, and you're happy. Yeah. You're kind of sleepy. You're just bobbing there, just, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then you realize everyone else is like, "What are they doing out there?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is probably what it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what do you do with that? Yeah. So thinking mind, I mean, it's a good sign in a certain way because it means the concentration's increasing. You're not getting lost in thought. So again, there's no reason to beat yourself up if you find you're in sinking mind. It means the concentration's increasing. Usually it's about bringing, bringing the energy up. So this whole, you know, there's a whole dance in this practice about, if possible, bringing the concentration up so you're not thinking so, you know, just getting lost in thought so much. And then, but it takes a lot of mental energy. As, as you were talking about being tired, it takes a lot of energy. So then your, your energy may lag and then you're getting sinking mind. And then at some point, the vichara, the sustained attention starts kicking in where you don't have to just keep applying your attention over and over. It's kind of staying there for a while. Then you have a little more energy. And then, it's, and then the object gets a little sharper, and now you're, you're up a level, and then maybe you'll get too much energy, you'll start thinking again, and you have to get the concentration up. So it's like Stephen talked about getting up to a certain vibration. You're kind of just stair-stepping. Your consciousness is getting more and more purified, and you're stair-stepping the energy and the concentration up until at some point you know, you're in access concentration, and then at some point you're at the level of jhana, and boom. You know. and, and the high access, people are, are sitting on our retreats. After about the first week, it goes to open sitting. We sit with a group an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, then it's open schedule. And people are and in there. And the talks. And, and people are in their hours. They're in their two hours, three hours, four hours on their own. Without, we don't require it. 
at all. We, we do we do now set a maximum limit. We, we, we limit people two. on how long they can sit. Because yeah. we found after about two and a half hours, for most people, like, it's it's not very productive. You're getting into striving then. Yeah, yeah. it gets into a lot of... But anyway, people are doing it, and people with various injuries, I'm sitting with no pain, it's really comfortable. So there's really a lot of benefit to where the when the concentration and energy are high enough, it really... Sustains so, the but practice. yeah, the thinking mind, you could do the same kinds of thing. Well, you probably wouldn't want to open your eyes. Um, you could stand up. You could maybe just bring a little bit more, like, can you get a little bit more clarity? Almost like if the lens is sort of out of focus, you know, that's kind of what it's like. And then you get it more in focus. Um, usually with thinking mind over, usually if you meditate more or like say it's right before lunch, that's a common time, um, the energy will catch up usually. It's just a matter of staying with it long enough for that to happen. Let's do, let's do one more and then take a okay. break. Okay. Um, th- this feels very concentrated, <laughs> my time with you. Um, so I'm not even sure what my question is. I'm trying to put my practice in the context of your teaching, um, and it's a little bit difficult. So, kind of a concrete kind of question: How do I know if I'm in jhana? I mean, how how do I recognize that? Well, well a couple of the hallmarks are going to be, as we mentioned, there's going to be no thinking, yeah, and also there's going to be no no self reflection. Okay. So there isn't. There's ways that we know ourselves. Um, and all those ways are absent. They drop away. Yeah, okay. there's just, but there's full, crisp, bright awareness at the same time. And there's also the, the there's, it's a non-dual state. So yes. that might not be something that's known so much at the time. Mm-hmm. But, um, and also the, for most people, the level of intensity of that until one gets acclimated mm-hmm. to it, it's mm-hmm. intense. Really, I mean, you know, something really has happened. Yeah. yeah. So I'm experiencing at this phase of my journey a real vibrancy of being um, and experience. But I, I don't know if it has what you're speaking of. And, um, you know, part of me is listening to you and thinking, oh, there's more, mm-hmm. whatever more is. Yeah. Um, so I'm real clear now I'm going to, work on this practice and I was with you one more time and wanted to do that but I didn't so now a second time I'm real clear I will do that Um, so what's the difference between this vividness and vibrancy that I'm aware of at this stage and this kind of dropping away into a deeper truth and a deeper reality um can you respond to that? I know mm-hmm. it's ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, there's a whole progression in in this practice as we teach it. There's a whole progression up to first jhana that we don't teach at day longs because it's kind of like yes, you know, we don't want to dangle things that you aren't yeah. going to be you know experiencing. Uh-huh. But we do teach on retreats, and it's in our book. Okay, and so that would give you more of a sense of all the the milestones. Okay. Um, but you know the the vibrancy, the the brightness, the yeah. all of that that you're talking about may just be coming from having digested, composted the patterning, 
And so you can have a brightness in your mind yes. and a clarity and a, an, an uplift yes. that is um, a reflective of the work you've done. Okay. You but know? is is that in itself seductive in some way that well, keeps me from going deeper? Well, it can be, of course. It can be. Okay. Yeah. And, right. and, and, the, and the difference is if you want it to stay. Uh, there. Okay. Yeah. Here. If I want this to stay, if I want, if I, I like this, I want to stay, it's yeah. already gone to concept. Okay. It's no longer a fresh experience. Yeah. I, it may be listening to you. That's where I am. It's no longer fresh. And, and, and what's important to, yeah. to remember is that each of our true nature shows up in lots of ways in our practice. Yeah. And it can show up as peace, as brightness, as yeah. aliveness, as you know, all these various qualities. Uh, so that, that's all good. That's all telling you you're on the path, uh-huh. you're doing what you're doing correctly for you, and your unfolding is going in that direction. Okay. And this is just a particular practice path mm-hmm. that has its own delineations and whatnot. And okay. it, again, it doesn't, you can't necessarily cross. We try this when we finish the retreat with the Sayadaw to figure out, okay, we have this map of the Samatha from the Sayadaw. How mm-hmm. does this fit into the rest of Buddhism? How does it fit into Zen and Tibetan? Yeah. And, yeah. and the answer was it basically doesn't. Okay. There, I mean, there, some does and some right, doesn't. Right, there's crossovers yeah. on the, Tina yeah. talked about the Sila Samatha Vipassana. All, all Buddhism has those. Yes. But how they practice, what they emphasize, different. Okay. Well, you're making a clear recommendation to do this practice for an extended period of time. If, I mean, if you're drawn if to I it. Feel I mean, yeah. we always, if I feel moved. You, yeah. You've yeah. got to feel, feel the burn. It's really yes. your own flame has to be lit. Yeah, yeah, I understand pra- that. Because really what we find is it's a very much a self-selecting practice. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all yes. do it at home and get benefit, but for those yeah. drawn to retreat and deeper practice, there's something yes. that gets ignited that yeah. they can't stay away. That's helpful. And I'm feeling some kind of attraction today. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I think, should we, um, do we want to take that one? Yeah, and then we'll take a Sure. Okay, if you don't mind, okay. great. We'll take a break here. So, yeah, why don't we take um, take 15 minutes, so we'll come back at, is it 2.50? Yeah. About? Yeah, 2.50, and or will we be here for questions? Yes. So we'll be up here for a few minutes for questions.
Welcome back. So we're going to go ahead and do a sitting for about 35 minutes. And I won't give any more actual meditation instructions, but uh, what I'll do is walk you through some posture instructions. So you can go ahead and close your eyes. We won't have any reminders on the sitting either, the way that Stephen did on the last one. But this is just, you know, even if you've been meditating a long time, it's really good to pay attention to your posture periodically. I mean, I've been meditating, I won't say how long, but more than 30 years. And um, I, I still find that I can, my posture deepens in terms of the amount of support I can get from having the right posture. So go ahead and just, you know, get comfortable And I'll just spend a couple of minutes at the beginning here walking you through setting up your posture. And in this practice, it's really important to try and be comfortable and to be supported. And so like on our longer retreats, almost everybody ends up in a chair by the end of the retreat. So, you know, if you find sitting on the floor is what works for you, that is wonderful. And at the same time, anybody who would like to try a chair there's nothing like inferior about about using a chair. So really feel yourself sitting in whatever position you're in. Take a deep breath and really settle. Feel your body being supported by the bench or the cushion or the chair. See if you can just release into that support. Let yourself relax. Feel the the floor and ultimately the earth underneath your feet or your legs, whatever's touching the, the floor. And then moving up from the feet to the legs. And then to the the pelvis area. And with the pelvis, what's important is to see that your knees are a little bit lower than the pelvis. And this gives the opportunity for a slight amount of tilt of the pelvis. And if you're on a bench or a cushion, this is one of the advantages of being there is that that can happen naturally. In a chair, it may just require having your knees go a little bit lower than the seat of the chair. Just see if your pelvis is at an angle where then your lower back can have a little bit of a curve in it so that the pelvis is tilting forward a little bit. And this will set your whole back and head and upper body in a position that's natural. Like if you've ever seen a a skeleton hanging in a doctor's office, you can see there's a natural S-curve of the spine. And that's really designed to keep our body upright without having to use a lot of muscles or straining. So while you're feeling into your your pelvis area, just notice whether you're leaning to one side or the other. And you may just rock back and forth a little bit 
to make sure that you're really centered. Your spine is centered and there's equal amount of weight on both the left and the right side. Then going up the back, you've got that S-curve in the lower spine. See on the front if you can just have your belly be relaxed. You have enough enough um, muscle support there to keep yourself upright, but whatever you don't need, see if you can just be relaxed in the belly. And then going up to the chest. See if your chest can be open. This is one of the things that can often happen in meditation is that our chest kind of caves in, our shoulders come forward, and that's going to create a lot of pain and discomfort in the neck and the head and so on. So this is the other side of the S-curve of the spine is having the chest be open and relaxed and the shoulder blades kind of relax down the back. See if your shoulders can be relaxed. There's a lot of tension that's often carried there. And then just having your hands resting comfortably on your legs or in your lap. They could be folded or they could be out out in front. Whatever feels the most relaxed to you. And then feeling into the neck. And there's a way to have your skull balanced really right on the top of your spine so that your head can be supported by the spine without a lot of muscle tension required in the neck. So just feel if your neck is is loose. I want to make just a few small movements there. And then with the head, it helps to have your face in like a flat plane as if there was a wall. So this means the chin isn't up too high and not down too low, but sometimes it helps to just tuck the chin just a little bit so that there's also a space at the back of the neck where you're not pinching there. And feeling the jaw can be another place where there's a lot of tension. Having some space in between the jawbone and the skull, just relaxing there. If it's comfortable, you can touch the tip of your tongue to the front of the upper palate, right behind the front teeth. If that feels like too much effort, you don't need to do that. This also relaxes the jaw and completes an energy circuit in the body. Let your face be relaxed. Let the eyes rest in the sockets. Let your forehead be relaxed. Even let your scalp be relaxed. And just settle into yourself as you breathe and you know that you're breathing 
in the Anapana region. So one of the questions we get at about this point in the day is, well, this sounds great. Clearly there's retreat practice available, but what do I do right now at home? And this can in fact be a home practice as well. So first to those of you, if there are any that, that are, have not yet established a daily practice, that would be our first suggestion would be to start sitting every day. That's where you start really building on the uh, quantity, it's like the expression the Buddha has, the one drop many times. You know, you see this in nature sometimes hiking up in Yosemite in places, there'll be these big granite boulders and they'll be carved out from this real steady stream of melting snow each, each winter. So the one drop many times really can make quite a difference in your practice life. So that would be the first suggestion we'd make. The the other is, it seems that some people hold a meditation uh, such that when they have a good meditation, then there's an impetus, there's a motivation to sit more. And if they have meditation that they consider to be not good, then they're not interested to go back right away, so they take a break. And the way we view it is that it isn't a matter of whether it's we would categorize it as good or bad in any one day. It's a matter that we meditate and it's a showing up and a commitment to our own unfolding is what we're representing. And we're opening ourselves to the mystery, to the, the transcendent qualities of this practice and this path that we, help, we all have. So it's, it's a matter of uh, we can apply ourselves and do that. And for, for Tina and I, we, some people have let us know, given their opinion, that they will practice maybe one day they'll do samatha and one day vipassana, for example. We tend to be more in the camp of setting, setting aside amount of time, a week, a month, to do a practice. And then at the end of that period of time, doing another practice. And that way you're doing a bit of a deep dive with whatever practice you're engaging in. And you can have the fruits of that. So there may be a way to do that for you that makes sense. And sila's very important. Behavior is quite important. Um, there was a quote from the Sayadaw from our teacher, and he believed that, that sila was wholesomeness was very important. So one of the ways that we can work with sila 
with wholesomeness in our lives is, is the outside of my life matching the inside? So whatever your experience, your realization, your uh, touching your deeper nature, is that being reflected in my outer life in ways that are supportive and generative? And if not, what, what might be changed to help that? So that's something to be looked at. And that uh, there's also the question, too, of how, what kind of information we take and what kind of stimulus we expose ourselves to. And this is really a very personal decision on what, what category of entertainment and activity might you consider to be something that's polluting your mind stream as opposed, in, as opposed to clarifying your mind stream. And it's so easy these days, you know, we all can go online and it's sort of a slippery slope we never come back from for quite a while. So it's pretty easy to get pulled off into, uh, into that, that uh, somewhat madness. But anyway, so just again, the self-exploration, what's, what's supporting my unfolding, my deepening in my life, what's not, what can I change that's reasonable and how might I do it in a way that's uh, supportive, which doesn't mean we all abandon our lay lives and go off to Asia and become monastics. That's not the answer for everyone. And we can tell you from the monasteries and monastics we've come in contact with, they take their, their stuff with them. <laughs> so whatever you think you might leave behind of your personality, it's, it's coming along. <laughs> and in the monastery, sometimes it gets accentuated because of the the lack of social contact and the and the silence. So... Anyway, sorry to tell you that's not an escape you can use. <laughs> Any comments on daily practice? Um, yeah, in terms of this practice in particular for daily life, one of the places it can really be um, useful like to have as something you might do for a period of time is if you find yourself really stressed or if life is really chaotic, you have a period of time like that, this practice in particular can be helpful there because it really does bring the serenity. The serenity is one of the things that really um, can be somewhat of an antidote to that. Just the way if you were had a period of time where you were feeling maybe grouchy and kind of you know, angry at the world, you might do metta or at yourself, you know. This can be used especially for times where you want to bring more serenity into your life. And then also as, as a development, the concentration is, um, you know, you might bring it in, do a period where you're really trying to deepen your overall meditative capacity and your capacity in life to really be um, present with one thing, for a period of time. Now, there actually have been a few books written about the effect on, these are n- neuroscience studies where they do fMRIs and other, you know, uh, testing. And the impact of our kind of immediate response world with cell phones and texting and, you know, uh, all of this is actually changing the brain in such a way that, um, people's concentrative capacity is decreasing. So, you know, uh, it, it's kind of increasing a sort of ADD kind of way of relating to the world more, more broadly. More social. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there can also be a usefulness of the practice from that standpoint as well. And um, 
And with the sila, I mean, we really encourage, we do this ourselves and we encourage other people, like if you go on a retreat, a longer retreat, and then come back to your life, that's a really great time to just see what in your life may have been coming up during the retreat as something pulling you off that um, feels like it's not as congruent as you would like. Maybe, you know, you've evolved and changed, and so that's a great time to really look at what kind of changes you want to make in your life, whether it's around entertainment or, um, you know, consumption of different kinds of food or beverages or, you know, cleaning up a relationship with somebody. It's never too late to go back and and, um, try and clean something up if we've had a a little bit of an interpersonal mess in our lives or something that has been kind of um, felt off, there's always the opportunity to go back and make an attempt at at cleaning that up. So these are all ways of of including um, sila as part of daily practice. And in terms of how long to sit, we get asked that a lot. It really depends on you and your life and where you are, you new, intermediate, advanced how much do you work? Um, do you have people in your household? You know, so there's a lot of different factors. But we feel that, like, if you're brand new and it's really hard to sit for half an hour, 15 minutes is fine to get started. But we feel that, like, if you have a full-time job or, or you know, have kids in the house or have a lot of responsibilities, a half hour a day is fine. That's that's a good good sitting practice. If you have more time, you could try to do an hour, try to do 30 minutes in the morning and something at night. And um, like we meditate in the morning after breakfast every day. And um, I mean, there are those days that we have some commitment and one of us has to run off and we might have to sit in a car in a parking lot somewhere doing our meditation once we get to our destination. But we do that because then it becomes where it's not optional. You know, Stephen will often talk about how um, if you put it in the category of like cleaning the garage where you'll do it when you get around to it, when you have free time, it's easy to find that day after day after day you just don't have the free time. Whereas if you put it in the category like brushing your teeth, um, that's kind of where we put it, where you're not sitting there every morning brushing your teeth going, like, wow, this is a really good toothbrushing today, you know, or oh, this isn't a very good one, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. You do it every day because it's good for you. That's why you're doing it. So that's really how we see it, that it's if you can incorporate it into your normal routine and make it something that you do every day, we really feel that over the course of a lifetime, that's something that you can really see the benefit from. And we do see people will will set up and do one-day retreats at home or with a few friends or mm-hmm. a couple days. So there's lots of things you can do that are supportive if you can't get to a, a retreat, that you can keep your practice going. And like with this practice in particular, people will report back to us. They do things like when they're waiting in line for an elevator or in a bank or grocery store, they'll just touch into the breath and be with the breath during that period of time. So it's a way that you can just have contact and be doing some type of meditative contact, even though you're not doing full meditation, but within your life. There's lots of, lots of places that can happen. So the last thing we want to talk about then is what we call the wisdom of the samatha practice. And um, one of the things that's been 
interesting with the Samatha, the way it's positioned within Theravada Buddhism and, and other places. This isn't true in, like, in the yogic path. This isn't true, what I'm going to say. But the, the Sila Samatha Vipassana have been set up, whereas a lot of times people will think the only place where wisdom really is cultivated is in Vipassana. And so we, we started talking about this as a way to kind of challenge that view. And we'll give you a couple of um, kind of what are the supports for that. So one of the places that um, we really see this is, of course, in the Noble Eightfold Path, right? Concentration is one of the pillars of the Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha talked about in terms of how do we really find freedom from this kind of perpetual you know, self-operating machine of the me, and that was through the eightfold, eightfold path. And so right concentration over and over, if you read in the suttas, we talked about this before, he references the jhanas over and over and over and over as the, uh, when he uses the term right concentration, that's what he's talking about. So it's really a core part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, we talked earlier about how if you read when people would come to the Buddha and all these different places he would travel to and ask him how to practice, he almost always told them to start with a concentration practice, to do the, the samatha, the mindfulness of breathing, as a way to purify the mind. Um, but really the most important aspect of how this is a wisdom practice, is included in the wisdom of the Buddhist path, is in Theravadan Buddhism, wisdom technically is defined as insight into the three characteristics of existence. And so those are um, dukkha, which usually is translated as suffering, but we really prefer the term uh, unsatisfactoriness. So really what's being pointed out is that the human experience is, um, has an unsatisfactoriness to it that's inevitable. If we're happy, at some point that will go away. Um, and it's just part of the human experience to see that. Now this can be seen at another level of reality that's more fundamental than just our kind of everyday understanding of it. But this is one, so dukkha, anicca, which, which is impermanence. And so this, you know, we, we often think of impermanence at a kind of colloquial level of seeing that we're all going to age and die, things change, things don't stay the same, and that's all true. But there's another way of seeing it that's much more at a um, kind of much more fundamental level of really understanding the arising and passing of phenomena in a way that we can see that phenomena arising is really uncontrollable. And, um, and this is really what the Vipassana practice focuses on. So if one was to take the Vipassana sort of to the level that would be equivalent to jhana, there can be a fundamental um, perception of reality of how things arise and pass that really shifts our perception of reality. And so this is really where Vipassana focuses in. And then there's um, anatta, which is not self, no self. It's translated different ways. This is really what we've been talking about a lot today. The thinning of the me is kind of oriented here. So this is a direct perception uh, that the me that we think we are, 
really is a, is a mental construct that isn't, doesn't actually have reality in itself. I mean, yes, there's, there are separate bodies sitting here and so on. That's all real. And we're all functioning in, in a certain way that um, has, it has a, a feeling of independence. But there's an arising of phenomena that's actually a much larger fabric. And at the core of that, I mean, there's sort of the unity aspect on one side and there's the emptiness on the other side. And that the me that we think we are really has a, a much more fundamental basis that is empty. And that is a place where this practice really can give people direct experience. So, and also into the suffering. I mean, on our long retreats, there's the transformational side and the transcendent. There's the that amazing, profound bliss that we can experience when we're really in contact with our deeper nature. And the other side of that is really feeling the hot coal of the personality. And so we would just propose that this practice does lead to wisdom. It leads mainly to the wisdom of um, anatta. And people can have, you know, anytime there's a full jhana absorption or even times when... um, the hindrances are at bay, which can happen in access concentration, you know, frequently for people. There's, there's no thought happening. And it's really a profound thing to go for periods of time without any thought. What am I without that? So, so these are all tastes of anatta that are really, these are the three pillars of basic fundamental reality as it's understood in Buddhism and um, and this practice does provide a pathway to experiences of that that are very profound. So we uh, we were having dinner with some other Dharma teachers several years ago. Do you ever wonder what Dharma teachers talk about when they're having dinner together? So we were talking about um, one of the topics, which is was really fun for us, is what's called the Kali Yuga. Has anyone heard of that? The, the dark age, the Dharma ending age. And it's, the Buddha actually, most people don't know this, but he actually made some predictions because, of course, he, was, he had the wisdom eye and he had omniscience and other things. Um, and he predicted that there would be a Dharma ending age. And this is also talked about in Tibetan Buddhism. So one of the people we were having dinner with knew a lot about the different theories and the different lineages of Buddhism, what they predicted, and so on. But but anyway, the Buddha predicted this, and he it's called the Dharma-ending age, and that one of the things that would actually undermine Buddhism was um, was a marginalization of concentration practice. So um, it's really interesting to see that that, and of course there's all this debate about when is the Kali Yuga? Are we in it right now? Is it over and now we're coming out of it? You know, so we, anyway, this is what Dharma teachers talk about when they have dinner together. But, um, but it really has been interesting for us to see that the Buddha actually predicted that what, what has now happened would happen. And that... Um, and so there's the potential for that to be reversed. I mean, it's really to the question we had earlier, where's all the samatha practice? 
Well, 20, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have seen a day long like this. Even 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen a day long like this. So there's something happening now in Buddhism that's really integrating these different parts of the path in a way that, um, that gives us a lot of hope. And, you know, we were kind of handed this baton. We never set out to be Dharma teachers. We were right in the middle of normal lives with jobs and mortgage and kids and, you know, all these things. And we kind of got handed this baton. And, um, and we picked it up. And it took a lot to change our lives around so that we could be able to do this. We had to, you know, sell our house and a lot of big things. But um, something is happening in Buddhism where the concentration is being joined with the insight. And you all are now a part of that. So, you know, whether you choose to pick it up or not is really up to you. We always encourage people to really follow, follow your own heart and your practice and do what speaks to you because that will carry you really far in your own practice. But... Um, we hope that today has been a little taste of this part of the path and um, to bring a respect for that back into Buddhism and, and give it the place that, that we feel that the Buddha had it for himself and for the people who he taught when he was alive. So any, do you have anything to add? Nope, I think we can go to questions. Yeah. I've got one in the back. Hi. Uh, a couple of questions. When you when you speak of, um, can you hold it a little bit closer? When you speak of meditation uh, and um, no thought, is that defined as like when you were talking about what well, just clicked on this? Join this retreat and without any thought. Uh, is it like coming from a place of instinct and intuition or just this energy that moves through you, guiding you? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's a good question. When I was referring it to it for myself, was signing up for the retreat with the Sayadaw, I wouldn't consider it to be no thought. It was just something bigger was happening that I was an observer to, mm-hmm. is what I would say. And, and it all worked out. There was an intelligence happening that I was witnessing, but I wasn't initiating. Uh-huh. And the no thought in practice actually is where, you know, if you think of thoughts like clouds crossing in the sky, and the clouds start getting less and less, and at some point, all of a sudden, there's a sense of, wait a minute, there's, there's been any clouds for a while. And, and there's just something about that that can be, as Tina mentioned earlier, can be really profound because we have such a connection to our thoughts. We, we believe that we are our thoughts. And if they stop, it's like, I'm still alive, which is some people are surprised about that. <laughs> and then it's, you know, what do you, what do you do? How do you function? And yet it all takes care of itself. So that's a very different experience where the thoughts cease because there's so much depth and the jhana factors have arisen so much that there just isn't the need. There's so much stillness that the thoughts just quietly stop. Yeah, so, so your question, where does it come from? This is why we talk about the mystery. I mean, you could say it's coming, everything is coming from the ground of being. Everything is that. But there's a place in the path where it becomes a mystery. And we can't actually explain it. But we can experience directly 
what is animating us. And um, the more harmoniously we uh, function from that, the less suffering there is. Go ahead. Thanks again. Um, this has been just a beautiful day for me. So really, thank you. Um, I really appreciate the wisdom from both of you and uh, your practice all these years because it helps someone like me to move maybe forward, is that the right word, or deeper. Um, and I also really uh, delighted in your use of metaphor that just brought me to, it kept bringing me to some at least cognitive clarity and maybe also heart clarity, you know. Um, so, yeah, just thank you. Welcome. You're welcome. We're out of questions, huh? Wow. Oh, here's one in the front. So great, thank you. You're on. Thank you. Um, I, you talked about doing longer retreats, and I noticed that you have one coming up, an 11-day one. Is that? Is there anything else? I'm from Canada. Well, we have a, a three-day starting Friday right, up so in Santa Rosa with, with Richard Shankman, which should be a fun retreat. Yes, I'm going to probably do. do that one. That's and then great. we're doing a five-day in April, is it? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Five-day in April at Cloud Mountain in right Portland, here. and then 11-day in like October or something like that. In October. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. Yeah, we have our three-day, which starts next Friday in Santa Rosa at the Angela Center. And, and there are spaces left in that one. It's yeah. going to be a small, intimate retreat, so if you're... So are yeah. you repeating a lot of what we got today? Okay, that's fine. Well, yeah, yes will no, be. Because, because Richard will Richard, be doing his own yeah, teaching. Yeah, he's going to be, you know, he doesn't teach quite exactly the same we do so as we do, so it'll that's be, fine. you know, that will be different. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, five day from April 8th to 3rd at Cloud Mountain, which is, where in Canada are you? Toronto. Okay. okay. Yeah, I'm leaving well, the end of April. We have been teaching in Italy too, and, we, and, and we're getting Canadians. <laughs> we actually had a few Canadians, Canadians come from to Toronto. come to Italy because yeah. it's a little easier. I, I guess. would love to know about that. Yeah, yeah, we don't have Thanks. any scheduled right now. Okay. Then the uh, eleven day is September twenty third through October fourth at Cloud Mountain. Okay, I'll check that. Yeah, out. thank you. Yeah, and then next in twenty seventeen we have a weekend retreat in Morro Bay, California. And we'll probably be doing a day long here. Yeah. Or actually, in a new place. That's right. So, do you want to? We do got one more here. Go Is ahead. that okay? Yeah. Um, so, I, I have been using the Brahma Baharas for concentration and found that really helpful. Mm -hmm. And I have a sense of the state that I'm cultivating with those practices. And today I was feeling, I was having this sense of almost barrenness, that there wasn't something um, to connect with. And I don't know if that's sort of the point or if there is a state that I can orient to. I don't know, is it the clarity? Or I, I guess yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how to use the practice or connect with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, the Anapanasati is, is a very neutral practice. It's more... I mean, it's not content-free, but since it's the breath, it's something we're already doing. It would, it, I could see how it might feel like it. It was um, 
you're not orienting to as much as you are, like with a Brahma Vihara with Metta. Um, I mean, they're again, they're cultivating different things. And if you feel that the metta is really what's drawing you, then there's no reason to change off of that for now. Uh, what's, what's good about having something more neutral is that um, it's kind of a more universal application. So as one's practice can evolve to where it's kind of like your practice is sort of going on all, all day, Within that, it's it's a lot more of a blank slate, whereas metta could arise if there was a situation where that called for it and so on. So just in terms of the larger scope of one's life and practice, that's probably why this is considered to be kind of a base. Does that make sense? But there isn't, sure. I mean, there is, with the Anapanasati, what happens, the jhana factors, in a way, are kind of like a Brahma-vihara, because the Brahma-viharas result from the purification of heart. They come up naturally. And with the Anapanasati, what comes up naturally is the jhana factors. Uh-huh. So those are kind of the equivalent of a Brahma-vihara, although in the Brahma-viharas you also have jhana factors. Uh-huh. So I don't know if this is getting confusing, but... No, yeah. I think what drew me to the practice was the idea of a certain level of intensity that I, I kind of hunger for, and, and mm-hmm. yet feels a little bit distant at the beginning of this practice. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It, it gets more intense as you go on, and also on retreat, it can be very intense. Yeah, the, uh, on the retreats, ironically, it's the stillness that actually is what feels powerful. It just gets so still, and there's such a, a kind of a, a warm heart quality is a sense of community among the people usually, but just the, the stillness gets to where it's just it's really powerful. To the end of the meditation, I'll just have this. We, we have some retreats where we've been told that people will come in to meditation hall at different times within the 24 hour period, and, and other than meal times, someone's meditating. So you show up at two in the morning, someone's in there sitting because they felt called to sit. So it really creates a kind of uh, quality of stillness that's really palpable. Thank you. Do we want to sit here? No. Okay. We have a question here. Oh. Um, yeah, kind of taking off on on this woman's question, um, for those of us who are new to this kind of practice, where um, I know, for speaking for me personally, there was definitely the challenge of finding enough sensation to stay anchored with it. And so as a practice suggestion for those of us in that situation, would you recommend just really staying with this area because that's really what's going to be most powerful in the long run or using something more like breath in the belly as a bridge to it? I, I'm personally not a fan of the bridges. I, mm-hmm. I think there's something about the integrity and the organicness of, in this practice in particular, starting with it and then just each step, there's something developmentally that happens and that psychologically gets affected, that we just don't see a lot of, we don't see a lot of benefit to people trying that. People do, do they do they do Tibetan practice, they do Rigpa practice or Zen practice or Vipassana, and then they, you know, want to come. And this, for some reason, to start from zero really makes a difference, in my view. Yeah, I, I mean, th- <clears throat> it's good to do that when you're doing that practice. So, you know, it's not that we object to it 
in itself. It's right. just, I don't know how helpful it is because then you're splitting your attention and that's going to make your attention, your concentration be weakened because you've basically got two objects now. Yeah, you're taking the, the um, top off that lid we're trying to boil yeah, by changing practices. Right. So I think staying there, you know, sometimes people say, well, I can feel kind of the inside of my nostril. Well, Okay, can you move it down a little bit to where it's kind of near the nostril? You know, things like that, because you're sort of in the region. To me, that's a better kind of bridge. So I don't know if that applies to you or not. Usually what we found really is that over time, just about everybody can um, use the, the breath in the Anapana region in some way as an object. It just takes some while, it takes a little time to kind of get there for some people. Well, and what Tina says, it, it, it's a very fine point. We've actually had this discussion with the Saidao that technically you can't use the breath inside the nostril. It's got to be outside. It can be on the rim of the nostril is the technical mm -hmm. answer. But we tell people if you can feel it inside the nostril to begin with, that's fine. Just be with it. And as there's concentration developing, it, there seems to be a natural migration to outside and into this area. So that works. But so we're not quite as strict about that, but that's the technical answer. Thank you. Okay, so there's a couple of couple more announcements before we finish up. Um, we do have how many people are aware of the insight timer? Just a few. Well, quite a few. Okay. So what it is, it's an app on your phone or your um, well, anything that uses apps. And it's called Insight Timer. There's a free version. There's one that's $2.99, I think. And um, it's really a great way to time your meditations. You can set up the, the bells, tones you want. You can set it up to do intervals where you get reminded with bells. Um, and you also can see other people that are meditating. And we have a group on the Insight Timer that's called the Awakening Dharma, which is our nonprofit uh, Samatha meditation group. And you know, any people doing any practice can join it. But if you want to join it, we practice every every morning between usually between like seven and nine, unless we're on on retreat teaching, and then we aren't using that. Um, but we now we have I don't know we have quite a few people in the group now, and it's just a way to be with other people who are doing the practice. So if you want to either join our group if you're already on there, if you haven't been on Insight Timer, it's a great way to feel a sense of community. People all over the world, you know, thousands of people that you're meditating with at home. And I used this. I did a month long um, solo retreat last March. And I used the Insight Timer. It was so great. You know, any time of the day or night, I could meditate. We have people in our group from about 15 or 20 countries now. You know, I'm meditating with somebody in Israel or, you know, in Alaska or whatever. So anyway, we welcome you to join us on there. Um, Did you mention the email list? There's the sign-up sheet in yeah, the back so if you want to be on the email sign -up list. Yeah, so we have our sign-up sheet if you want to be on our email list. It's mainly announcements and um, when we po post new talks that you can download for free on Dharma Seed. So if that isn't something you're doing, you know, we invite you to download t our other talks, of which we do have a whole set of talks on the Brahma Viharas also. This one will be on Dharma Seed also. Mm -hmm. um, in the coming weeks. Let's see. So the website, we have free talks. Uh, 
sign if you want to get our newsletter, sign the list. We we don't give it to anyone. We only send emails about six times a year. It has events and you know um, other things that we're doing on there. And our books are also on e-readers, so you can get that on Amazon or other e-readers if that's something you're interested in. It's also now in Italian and Korean. Yeah, the Korean was, cover is really beautiful. It, too. it was pretty funny. We got the cover. It's a beautiful cover. And we did chuckle a bit because we can't tell it's actually our book. We, we can't read any, <laughs> it's in any, Korean, it, so. we can't read any part of it. So I said, this could be a cooking book for all we know. They just <laughs> sent it to us. We actually have two students who we know of that speak Korean, and we've given them they, one they have, of them They have confirmed it as our book. Yeah, yes. and, and we've been told that it's a good translation. So we just kind of have to take their word for it. Um, we also do individual sessions by phone or Skype, which a lot of teachers don't do anymore. So we work with people all over the world by Skype, if you want, because you, you can see us. And, um, and that can be, for some people, a good support for your practice where you can you know, get advice on your practice or even your larger practice as a whole. We, we work as a spiritual mentor, and th- there's information about that on our website. And I think we've talked about all of our events. Anything else? I don't think so. And if you haven't taken a look at the picture as a side out, you may want to pay your respects on the way out. It's, he's, he, he's, in the, he's also in the gratitude hut here. He is, yeah. A few years ago, we, we asked about having him added to the gratitude hut, and so they let us they actually pick out the photo and write the little... Um, the little description, and so he's in there now. So he's 82, and we're not sure how much longer he'll be he'll be around. But um, would he be coming back here to teach in middle? Probably not. No. The question's no. about him teaching here, and he he's been semi-retired for a long time. We keep hearing about him doing a retreat here or there, but mostly when we've seen him, he said, "I'm on solo retreat, and I'm just." You know, he wants to develop his own practice. He's not the abbot anymore. There's a new abbot at Powak Monastery who's, you know, much younger and will be around a long time. And we had the good fortune a couple of years ago. He did a solo retreat for a few months, and he invited us down every month to have lunch, bring bring lunch down and offer. And it was amazing being around him doing his own solo retreat. It was almost like it would, we almost fell unconscious just walking around him, <laughs> being in his field. And uh, we had to make these agreements while we were driving down that okay. we weren't going we're to not moving to Burma. We're not ordaining. <laughs> this is agreement. Because every time we'd see him, he'd try to get us to commit to going there and ordaining. And uh, yeah, we walked in once. He's again, monastics aren't allowed to say what their stage is, but of course, all the lay people talk amongst themselves. And there's a lot of talk that he's uh, he's a, a third stage in, in this is the Theravadan sort of schema of things non-returner, and that he's been trying to get to Arahant, which is the final stage of enlightenment. And that's what he's doing all these long retreats for. So we don't know if that's happened or not. But one time we went in, he had invited us down, and he came down, and, you know, he's Burmese, and he came down, and his eyes were blue. And we just thought something, and, the, the, like, the tops of our heads started vibrating, you know. And, and um, he's got an amazing practice, so... Anyway, so shall we dedicate the merit of today? Yes, please. So, um, as is traditional, we, in Buddhism, there's the opportunity to dedicate the merit of your practice to 
a being or a group of beings or to all beings. So, um, so if you'd like to do that, you can feel that sense of well-wishing for all beings coming out from your heart, going through the room, out to the property, gradually spreading across the earth, all of California and the oceans, all of the beings there. Circling around till our well-wishing covers the earth. May this practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you all for coming and spending your day with us and your good practice, your good questions, your good comments. I really enjoyed being with you today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.